All right. Let's try it again. Quick fire, misfire. I believe so. Check. Okay, cool. check one. All right. Mike, check up. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome to the Mad Mum Luke's. I'm Mahi, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Sheikh Amr Saeed and Sim. On today's show, we welcome a good friend of ours, Mabin Vade, who works in the boring field of IT, but is more known for us as a writer at Muslim Matters, as he writes on a number of subjects, ending with isms, liberalism, feminism, and also some folks would say he also has a specialty in writing between the relationship uh, between non-heterosexual creatures. Uh, so, Mobin, uh, what brings you to Chicago? First of all, welcome to the Windy City. We just smashed some deep dish. What's happening? Oh, like Happy yeah. Valentine's Day, by the way. Yeah. Do you celebrate? Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> like, like how, how are you, like, a way to, able to get away from home? Y- your wife's not, like, gonna, like, you know, get on your case for bail on this day? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it doesn't doesn't hold much meaning in our household. <laughs> Valentine's Day doesn't. Dang. I, I was already out of town, so okay. I was actually in Denver for work, and then I came here to Chicago for work as well. And so, man, I don't know. But how yeah, you, I'll take some tips from you, man. Yeah, no, we we don't really. Like, do. I'm gonna be the doghouse for like a month. <laughs> <laughs> no, in our house, it's kind of like Eid and. That's the two Eids, mashallah. Yeah, it's the two Eids and, you know, our anniversary, right? There there are certain occasions like that. Islam Kuwait Fatwa right there, dog. Right. (laughs) (laughs) There there are occasional things that we'll sort of remember and keep in mind and commemorate, but yeah, Valentine's Day is not one of them. (laughs) What about International Hijab Day? Did you uh, celebrate that or commemorate that? Is that like, is that a popular thing? I I think think apparently. Okay. I I saw it on Twitter. But the the thing is, there's a day for everything. I went to a pizza place the other day. It was National Pizza Day. The next day, I go crazy. I saw saw the National Pizza Day thing. They had had discounted a couple of pizzas. You know what I do celebrate is Fat Tuesday. That was yesterday. Y'all know about Fat Tuesday? No. It's like beginning of Lent or Mardi Gras. It's like, because you get to eat these things called punchkis. I found that about it when I moved to Chicago. It's like a Polish kind of sweet pastry. It's basically, it's basically a donut stuffed with a bunch of stuff. <laughs> okay. <laughs> stuffed with a bunch of stuff. Like, and, yeah, but just, National Hijab Day goes back, what, like a couple of years. I mean, it's fairly recent, right? I thought it was the right? first I, 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 time I've heard about it this year. Yeah, I mean, it, no, yeah. it, it's been I around it's for like a couple of years, but year? yeah, it's, it hasn't, it doesn't go back yeah. that long. Like, there's not the storied history behind yeah. it. And, you know, whenever there's a National Something Day, it just makes it kind of gimmicky. Right, yeah. right. So like National Pizza Day is just a day to get like discount on pizza. Yeah, and so I'm not, I'm not sure what National Hijab Day like. I'm not sure that it sort of commemorates or I'm not gonna something. Be, yeah, right. Which is ideally what we'd want to do if like hijab is brought up. We'd want to yeah. say, well, you know, that's something to be honored because it's from the commands of Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala, and our sisters are having to uphold that in a difficult time or something like that. If that was like the intent, I'd say much more. I think that like, is maybe, kind of the intent. Yeah, maybe that's it. I, the only time I've ever seen sort of like hijab campaigns are usually like MSAs and stuff where yeah. they'll do like the try on on a try on a hijab thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know; those can kind of be hit or miss depending on like um, depending on the MSA and what's going on yeah. and stuff like that. I, and uh, you know, I, I don't know. Right. I haven't seen enough of them to like really comment broadly, but or make too much of a generalization. But sometimes I feel like just the try on the hijab is more like a cultural thing, mm-hmm. right? Where they're saying, "Hey, we just we're just part of this like multicultural society, and we're just trying to fit into that fabric and get you to appreciate us as like another diversity category, as opposed to saying like, look, this is like we have a certain and specific standard of modesty, and you know this is what it entails." I think a lot of the old pros right. want a National Turban Day. I was <laughs> you know, I could get down with uh, National Niqab Day. <laughs> because the National Hijab Day, when I look around, like people are like promoting this. You know, 
like hijab isn't just about like a piece of cloth on your head. It's like yeah. they got gobs of makeup and then they got like low rider skinny jeans going on, like extra skinny. <laughs> right? <laughs> so I'm like, yo, you, you can't be like pretty much dressed like you're wearing spandex and yeah. then got a hijab on your head and call it hijab. Yeah, maybe in Chicago, it's less common in Philly to run into that. <laughs> so. So. Philly holds it down, though, you know. Yeah, Nikah yeah. Day will start in Philly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Even amongst the non-Muslims. Yeah, I mean, I, I'll be honest. I, I think, I mean, just, just me ad-libbing. I, I think if people were to, like, actually do a national niqab day, I, I think that there are elements of, like, leftist liberalism that would yeah. embrace that type of thing. Because they're not necessarily opposed to, like, niqab, right? There may be, a, a, you know, an element of, like, difficulty yeah. and strangeness that people would have to overcome. But at the end of the day, the left really prides itself on its willingness to accept like any sort of like variant of like people's personal expression yeah sort of their own individual truth quote unquote and so if people were to do that they would say hey you're just like fitting into this tapestry that we've already um we've already affirmed yeah. right and we've we've set the structure for and so you know that that's problematic on its own right but I think plenty of Muslims would look at that and they'd say look like this is why they become like natural partners and allies for us yeah, so well, we live in a multicultural society, though, right? So that would—that's how they'd respond, and like, of well. course. But that, but for us, like hijab and niqab aren't just like cultural symbols, right? Like, like there may be things that like are expressions of Muslim societies that are cultural, right? Like yeah. we might look at like a cuisine and say that that's indigenous to a particular culture, right? But we don't look at hijab that way and say that it's indigenous to culture. We say that it's indigenous to religion, right? And we're saying that it's it's an expression of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's specific command as to how women are supposed to dress, right? The same way that we wouldn't look at like adhan as a cultural thing, for instance, and say, well, that's just like Muslim culture. No, that's like, that's from Islam, right? We're not treating ourselves as like an ethnic category or a cultural community, but we're treating ourselves as a community whose identity and definition emanates from its commitment to following the path of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and following the path of Islam. Like being Muslim necessarily entails that a person is, is actually a believer in Islam and is trying to follow that, right? Like mm. that's, that's what it means to be a Muslim, right? And this is why, uh, this is why there are a lot of like problematic discourses when it comes to the way that people conceive of and employ the term Muslim today. Because there is, and a lot of people make this commentary today, that there, is, there are these efforts, sort of wittingly or unwittingly, to just sort of gerrymander Muslims into these sort of identity politics where we just become another racialized ethnic community and we get supported and we have political programs and activities that are advanced within that framework, right? Um, and so it's an issue, right? And something that we have to be aware of. So let me ask you this. So we've yeah. got... Um if you're so let's break down Muslims in America. You've got yeah. immigrants, uh, most of whom like their parents came over or they came over edu higher education or economic gains, etc. You've got your indigenous African American Muslims and your other converts uh, to Islam, um, whose, whose families may go back generations in America. Um, I don't know what the percentage breakdown is to be honest, yeah. but speaking on behalf of the immigrant community, right? Um, you you look at if you look at the people who came over because their families came for education or economic gain or what whatnot, you're probably looking at a very small minority be of people who were actually practicing right. So like, how is such a small percentage of people gonna withstand? Because your average Muslim like 
you, your average Muhammad who's now Mo, you know, was probably like, yeah, we just got to assimilate. And and the thing is, 80% of his cohorts have pretty much agree with him, right? Yeah. So you're you're battling not only against, you know, the outside forces, but internally. And we're such a small percentage. So is this a fight even worth fighting? The fight worth fighting to try to uphold, like, Islam? I mean, <laughs> like, I'm not... I'm not of course, like, I mean, that's obviously a fight worth fighting. I mean, the difference is if you, if we just look at the way that America as a country has evolved over the years, right? Um, I'd say at least well into the nineties, Western society as a whole in general, and then America in particular had a very strong religious expression, right? It was common to have religious, not just symbolism, but practice in the public square, right? And so I, you know, I, I grew up and, Virginia and it wasn't all, at all uncommon on Sundays to run into like traffic right around churches and things like right. that because they were still heavily attended um, you know most restaurants were offering like Sunday brunches you'd see people on their Sunday best like that wasn't an uncommon sight um, but again over the last sort of decade or two we, we've had a very strong sort of secular wave that has um, just sort of ravaged that prior sort of religious structure that was in place and those prior religious commitments. And so religion has sort of evolved accordingly as well, right? And so what we have is secular religion that's expressed, which is uh, quite a bit more watered down. It uh, it traffics in ideas of faith over religion. It, it looks contemptuously at ritual, right? And so that's why ritual carries a lot of negative baggage today. Mm. When people talk about rituals, they'll just say, oh, that's just like ritualized faith. And we don't want to just be doing like empty rituals. Um, it's, uh, you know, to borrow a term from Charles Taylor who talks about just the secular age, it's disenchanted, right? It doesn't refer to transcendent norms. It doesn't appeal to ideas about metaphysics and just the world around us. And for Muslims, I mean, that's very important because for us, we have a very strong sort of metaphysical like set of commitments. And we believe that there's a lot more to this world than what we see, right? In fact, the world of the unseen for us is a lot more real than the seen world, right? This world in the Quran at times is described as a very deceptive world, right? Right? Don't let, allow yourself to sort of be deceived by the life of this world, right? Because it can be a deception because a person will look at it and think what's immediately in front of them is the sort of totality of what this world contains, Whereas in reality, there's a lot more to it. And we believe that all around us, there are angels. And we believe in jin, believe in jinn and shayateen. We believe in, you know, any number of things that exist beyond sort of our sight. Right? And all of those things are very vibrant and active. And, you know, those, those aren't trivial for us. Right? And so, you know, when a person, when a person sort of removes themselves or evicts sort of all of those convictions and just looks at sort of this dunya materialistically, right, as sort of like what's immediately in front of them, then, you know, obviously the outcome of that is going to be a community that does not talk about God as often, does not talk about prayers frequently, right, does not look at its own scripture or books as often. Um, you know, the idea of, you know, all of those things start falling by the wayside. And so, you know, I, I think like even those uncles, like you talk about immigrants that came in the 60s or 70s or whatever for financial gain, they were still walking into a society that had sort of entrenched religious roots that were in place, 
much stronger than they are today. Now, again, those those were constantly being challenged. You had like the sexual revolution of the 70s and things like that. And so they were, it wasn't easy, right, for them. But the idea is that if a person wanted to be like a really sort of um, sort of confessional religious person, right, like a confessional Muslim, it wasn't strange. They, they weren't overcoming the same number of obstacles that people are today. Or people look very sort of skeptically at religion as an institution. They, certainly that, that attitude plenty of people have towards scholars. Plenty of people have those types of attitudes towards masjids. Like it doesn't take much for people to just um, completely divorce themselves from the community and say, well, I'm done with this because all these people are just hypocrites and stuff like that. Mm. And so, you know, we're, we're dealing with a lot of challenges today that I think are unique, even in sort of like the chronology of American religious history. Yeah, it makes it really difficult, too, because that's, I mean, that's completely the direction and the theory of science that we're taught. Um, you know, and when it comes to academia, the intellectuals that are supposed to be intellectual society are referred to, uh, or they're used as a resource or a source of, you know, uh, uh, the lack of religion, meaning, well, you mentioned about, you mentioned the, the reality and that's all there is to this world, right? Yeah. And that's obviously where atheism gets its roots from and, you know, doesn't like to surpass what's, what's on the apparent. So Muslim academia is catching traction of this too, unfortunately, right? Um, and that's I wanted to touch up on because I just recently found out you were in the Hartford uh, uh, seminary. Seminary, also. yeah, yeah. So if you can just kind of, I, I want to talk about Muslim academia after this, but uh, yeah, can you just sure. give us a little bit of a, what was your experience like there? Yeah, I mean, mine was kind of brief. I did a lot of the program remotely, so I did my master's there. And I had considered pursuing a PhD. I still do think about it time to time. Realistically speaking, it would never sort of be a career for me. Just because I think, uh, based on what I've already written, I've probably foreclosed on the likelihood of finding a job that would give me like decent pay and tenureship and stuff like that. For, for those who don't know, well, what is the Hartford Seminary? It's the Hartford Seminary. It's just a, uh, it's a university in Hartford, Connecticut. They have a really active Muslim chaplaincy program. And so if you look at most of sort of like the keynote chaplains in America, almost all of them went to Hartford. Um, most of them graduated from there, from their chaplaincy program. And so their chaplaincy program is a probably one of the most if not the most sort of vibrant and active program that they have um if you look at sort of their student breakdown i think at least half if not more are muslims that are registered as part of the chaplaincy or muslim leadership program and so that that becomes like a a big source of revenue for them and obviously it's it's a big part of their institution so yeah, I did a lot of it remotely. I did some in person. And then, like I said, I'd considered it. But there's a lot of ideological gatekeeping when it comes to people who are actually trying to like progress mm. in academic environments and like, hey, I want to get my PhD. But then you have all of this like um, ideological baggage with things that you've published. And it doesn't have to be much, right? There are people who have done far less than me that when it came time for like their tenureship reviews, ultimately, um, you know, ultimately were, uh, you know, rejected. So had, did, their, did, had their there, applications declined. Yeah. Is there a strong liberal bias in within that? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I think like the safest path to take is to really pick like some really obscure topic and traffic in sort of obscure academic interests that go back on figures that people don't really have a passionate like interest in one way or another and just kind of stick to that until you get tenureship. And then once you get tenureship, you have a little bit more freedom to expand. Mm. into like more contemporary interests and things that people actually like 
that you personally might feel passionate about and that you think may affect modern society. But even that's now being challenged quite seriously, right? Because if you're, if, especially, I mean, a Muslim academic today, if you come out and you take like a strong position or not yes. even a strong position, frankly, if you take like a really tepid position yeah. <laughs> on something that could, um, you know, just result in you being on the wrong side of like modern liberal discourse. There could be campaigns against you. Yeah, enough, in, yeah, enough pressure in any university applied strategically towards the right people. If there are financial stakes included, then, you know, I, I don't know how many universities would stand by their professors when all of that's taking place. Tenured or not, right? Yeah, tenured or not. I mean, absolutely. I mean, if you're an adjunct, you have you have basically no safety net, right? No. And, and adjuncts don't even get paid that well. And so... Mm. And so just given all of that, I mean, it's not, if I was going to get a PhD, it, it would not be for the purpose of like transitioning career-wise, right? That that wouldn't be the purpose at all. And uh, given my interest and everything else, I just, I didn't think it was worthwhile. You yeah. know, it's it's a long time commitment. <laughs> and uh, there are a lot of, there are a lot of things that you, you'd have to go through. I'm sure there's, there's some ful- fulfillment as part of that process and yeah. a person gets to research and do a lot of sort of scholarly, scholarly sort of rigor, scholarly, scholarly rigor. There's probably yeah. a lot of that there and things like that. But ultimately, it was something that I just decided against. Um, but what, yeah. so, so you were thinking about becoming a, a chaplain, or no? I wouldn't have ever become a chaplain. I mean, I did the master's program explicitly because I I wasn't in the chaplaincy program. Yeah. Um, you know, it's weird. I, I look at chaplaincy. I was sort of like a I was chaplain for the Muslim community at George Mason for a little bit in Fairfax. And that was like a voluntary thing that I was doing. I used to live down the street from it. And uh, I still do go there quite a bit. Uh, I'm an alumnus of the university. And so I, I, uh, I like giving back, I guess. And I, a lot of the, a lot of the guys who go there, um, a lot of the brothers and sisters who attend the university now are people that back in the day I used to teach in the masjid. Yeah. And so I'll get invited on occasion to come back there and things like that. But the chaplaincy position has sort of gone the way of it's, you know, a lot of it today is sort of therapy, counseling, um, developing relationships with students and stuff like that. And those aren't necessarily things I'm like good at, right? Yeah. Like, like if someone comes to me with, you know, needing help or therapy or someone to talk to, um, it's just, it's not my strong suit, right? I can be like, for, I mean, I don't know. Maybe it's just the stage I am at in life. But you know, well, there's is, like is, some college kid who's like, "Yeah, I want to get married." I'd just be like, "Get married!" Like, you know, <laughs> what are you talking to me for? Like, just go, like, do it. Like, yeah. What do you want, right? And so, you know, my interest is in like teaching, right? Yeah. But most MSAs don't put like a really strong emphasis on like classes and terbia and things like that anymore. Yeah, I mean, mashallah, you, you, the you're you're a very interesting uh, uh, person because you. Work in IT. You're 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 a you're a, if I can refer to you as a tech guy. Yeah. And you have this zeal for Islamic academia and education. Yeah. Right. And you're you're fairly young. You're younger, probably younger than all of us here. And you know, yeah. I want to know how uh, you got to that that point where you decided I'm gonna. Did it just happen to you naturally? Did you always have a zeal from your little kid? Was it your upbringing? Because it 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 plays a lot on on the writings that you have and. You know, some people will read your writings and say, hey, you know, someone, a specialist wrote this. Someone who's really a specialist wrote this. And that's what they do for their, you know, for their for their career, basically. Yeah. I mean, well, it takes me a long time to write a piece, right? And that's one thing. I know that, you know, some academics, that's what they do full time. And so for them, they can push out pieces in a week or two weeks or a month. For me, typically, it'll take a couple of months that I'll work on a particular article. 
uh, depending on the length and what I'm addressing and stuff like that. And so usually when something comes out, it's something that I've been sort of toiling well, when over. When did it start, though? When did, when did you start? Yeah, you I, I, I don't know. I don't know. Because you mean, do have a passion for teaching. I could tell you're a very teacher-like Yeah, person. yeah. When did you start? To, like, what, How old were you when you started teaching? Well, I used to teach uh, when I was in college. I used to teach like Sunday school and things like that. That's in fact, cool. even in like late high school, I used to just teach in the masjid like little kids and stuff like that. And so that was like summer programs, youth group and those types of things, yeah. which mashallah, I actually think is a really important. Um, yeah, it gives you experience at that young age. How yeah. many high schoolers, I'm not trying to, you know, yeah, no, praise but, you or anything. No, I'm just no, trying I, to give an example to the to listeners that yeah. at, at that age of high school, no one's really thinking about teaching Islamic studies. Well, you know, it's, it's weird, you know, at that age when, when I was sort of growing up, when you were sort of like late high school and you were getting into like wanting to like own your Islam and being a practicing Muslim and giving back, the natural avenue of giving back back then was sort of like, hey, let me try like helping out kids in the masjid yeah, yeah, and yeah. teaching Quran classes and things like that. That was the natural like yeah, next yeah. step, right? That was the natural progression. And it's weird to me because I'll see that today with like kids who are like in MSAs and stuff like that. And when they want to become active, like that next step for them is not like teaching kids. And th- they sort of look at that as, uh, I don't know, if potentially beneath them, right? Or unimportant. Yeah. They're more interested in either sort of public speaking, so they sort of desire the stage, or they want to become like social media personalities. Yeah. And so I'll see a lot of guys in college who sort of like, um, they get their own like um, personal pages, right? <laughs> and they start offering commentary on all like these important issues going on in the world. And, you know, it's weird. It's like, man, and, and you know, it's not hard to do, right? If a person just like goes at it long enough. Yeah. Well, you gotta do be controversial. That's it. Yeah. If you're willing to like traffic in controversy yeah. for a long enough period of time, you're going to get followers. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And those followers are going to grow. Like if you're like persistent, right. And, uh, it's very easy for a person to sort of delude themselves into thinking that they're like a thought leader. Right. It's a very alluring proposition. Yeah. Right. And for many of these people, that's kind of what they're after, right? Because that's that's the era that they've grown up in, right? If you look at the types of people who become celebrities, most of them are completely and totally like unaccomplished. Right? Yeah. They're like reality stars and stuff. Like, right. like what did they do to become famous? They made some like ridiculous comment on a news interview that went viral, and suddenly they're like being invited everywhere. Mm. Um, you know they they were they were recognized for some sort of like really outrageous activity that sparked their career right yeah. right and in some ways when people begin like their own like hey i'm going to like become this figure it the spark if these people actually do become like anything of note right in terms of like followers followers and stuff like that it usually requires that type of spark as well like mm-hmm. i'm going to be the person who's going to offer like this crazy comment on this like issue that everyone's like worried about, but like most people have too much like fear and concern, <laughs> like yeah, what yeah. I, to like offer yeah. like a definitive and confident statement on. And yet this person's just going to go off and be like, Hey, like I know a lot of people are worried about this. Here's my two cents. Yeah. And, <laughs> and some, and it can be like the dumbest opinion. It's pretty much Twitter right there. Yeah. It can oh. be like, it can be literally, <laughs> you can read it totally incoherent, whatever, but you know, enough people share it enough people like it yeah and it's going to continue sure right so, so back to your youth i, I, I don't want to like digress oh no no keep, keep no this digress, digress please yeah, so yeah, with sure. uh, got a lot to talk about i uh, uh the cops are here for mobin 
Son of the police. Yeah. The police. You're stepping yeah. out of line. The, uh, so Northern, I was um, I was watching some series that Omar Lee was putting on on YouTube. It was pretty cool. Uh, he he did one on Northern Virginia. Yeah. In like the mid in the nineties. Now you you might be a little you're I don't know how you're able to take advantage of, of that scene there, but. Like, it made it seem like Northern Virginia used to be the spot in America for Muslims. It really was, mashallah. You know? yeah. So I was like, yeah. what kind of interaction did you have? Like, we we hear, like, I didn't get into the Dean until, like, 2004. Yeah. So when I, I never, I wasn't around on the Dean back at the time of, like, Sheikh Ali Tamimi or Jamal yeah, Sheikh Adri. I had to go back and listen to some of their stuff, right? Yeah. Um, were you able to take advantage of that scene back then uh, when you were growing up? Or did yeah. you kind of? Mashallah, I was, I was blessed to. To take advantage of that, so I grew up going to the Adam Center, okay. and so I spent most of my life local to that area. So when I was young, my parents used to take me to the masjid there and things like that. Um, I was a student in the Mahad when I was in high school, and so I used to take classes there. Which I went to school like right down the street from where the Mahad was, mm-hmm. which was the Mahad al Arabiya al Islamiyah, which was a branch of Jamiat al Imam. Yeah, I applied there once. I remember oh, really? They yeah. pretty much just took people. Was, I mean, oh, do you apply to Jamiat al Imam Riyadh? Oh, the okay. They were being shut down, yeah. Yeah, I actually, I remember, I actually remember when they were shut down because I drove there for class and they were just like, yeah, mm-hmm. we're shut down. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> it wasn't, that was kind of like it. That was like, there wasn't, there wasn't really like big notice. It wasn't like the year finished and they said, hey, next year we're going to like, we're not going to continue this. You just kind of came in one day and, uh, they were like, yeah, the doors are locked and they're not opened. <laughs> and we're all sitting out there like, what happened? They're like, yeah. They, they shut the thing down. And so I was, I was there for a couple of years. Alhamdulillah, I was able to benefit there. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, there were a number of scholars in Sheikh, so a number, you know, a lot of them left the country. Some of them like Sheikh Ali Tamimi. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala make things easy for him. Was arrested, obviously. He's incarcerated now. Um, but you know, after 9-11, that area became a big area of focus for, um, for just the FBI and federal yeah. agencies. There was a lot of scrutiny when it came to just the way that Islam was being practiced. And it's difficult because I think a lot of people look at that in hindsight and they say, well, you know, those people weren't wise. And they were talking about things that they shouldn't have and all that type of stuff. But, you know, people who were like active in sort of the Muslim scene, like pre-9-11, you know, we were a lot less sort of like inhibited with the types of things that we used to discuss back then, right? It wasn't uncommon to go to a khutbah before 9-11 on the subject of jihad, right? Yeah. And not as like a nafs thing, right? Yeah. <laughs> not like an internal struggle. And, this you know, you would, you would hear a khutbah that was like yeah. end-to-end just about like battles and wars and, you know, yeah. praising this and that. And, you know, that was, that again, at that time, it was, it was a different world back then, right? Yeah. Even like popular scholars today, if you go back and like watch like their older videos and tapes, you know, like Imam Siraj pre 9-11 or you know, Sheikh Hamza Yusuf. Oh, yeah. Ooh, and uh, what a different person. Yeah. Imam Zaid, Sheikh Hasan I mean, you look at all these people and people look at it like, wow, like it just seems like a totally different person. It's like, yeah, it was. But that was that was a very different environment back it was, then. It was. Very different. I mean. You know, that there were really active, like, and aggressive disagreements between, you know, different, like, menhaj groups, right? Yeah. So you, like, the denominational, like, arguments that were really active. Today, people are all, like, Whatever. over that stuff. Right? No one really even cares. Even though you can criticize authority, you were... Mahin cares, though. Mahin's keeping it going. Mashallah. <laughs> he, 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 he misses those fires. Real. He's still keeping it real. Mashallah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. But no, even the way people you were able to criticize authority before, 
was yeah. much different. The landscape, you're right, it was much different. The type of guests and the topics you could speak about were completely different. Yeah, you know, it was uh, it was a whole it was a very different time. And if you don't live at that time, um, it's very difficult uh, to make sense of things and how much of a contrast there are right now. Right? It's like it's like yeah. I have to tell my daughter that uh, when we were growing up, we didn't have internet, right? But we were yeah. there. The pro- so kids in our generation they can't mm-hmm. understand that. Right, they, born, they can't understand how we didn't have internet growing up, and how we saw both sides. Right, I kind of give that analogy to little kids who kind of you know can't understand when you're trying to relay the essence. And that's another thing I want to uh, you know. Discuss. No, it's it's like when our parents uh, tell us about how they didn't have TV growing up, and yeah. they would listen to the radio, and our minds would be blown away. Yeah, yeah, yeah I remember that. And oh. we think that our life sucked, but then if you tell, we had fun growing up, right? Yeah. I mean, we had East oh, yeah. Bay catalogs. No, it's 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 interesting because you know once once a new sort of paradigm is established, yeah. people can't conceive of how the world would be outside of that paradigm, yes. right? Yeah. yeah. And so you know when we talk about like sexuality becomes a good topic where this this comes up a lot, where people people have sort of succumbed to just the way that the world is today. Right. If you earlier this week, I want to say Ross, I don't know how to pronounce his last name, Duthat. Doubt mm. that, something along those lines. I think he's like, I believe he's Catholic, but he's more like a religion. He does like religion op-eds and stuff like that, where he tries to bring modern issues into conversation with religion. But he wrote an op-ed earlier this week for the New York Times, and it was entitled, Let's Ban Pornography, right? Let's Ban Pornography. Mm. And he argued for like just all of the corrosive effects of pornography, right? And he says that there is enough here to seriously consider like placing sanction on this like generally available and uh you know pervasive like you know institution that exists in the world today right and the response was like so visceral and people were so cynical like oh it's, this guy's just living in like a, a fantasy world right uh-huh. like this is just how human beings are and i again i think about like yeah like okay i mean Generally speaking, pornography existed before the internet. Yeah. But it was totally different. I mean, the, the sort yeah. of like availability of it. The, I mean, respectful people would never be caught dead with like pornographic materials. You know, movies generally didn't have nudity at the same level that yeah. they do today. Yeah. Right. Even like, sec- I mean, honestly, even like kissing on television was seen as like a somewhat yeah. controversial thing. Yeah. And so it would be like late night programs that would have more of that. But like yeah. family sitcoms were more like, again, they, they were more like, you know, just like nice and family and they'd have some like lighthearted comedy in there and yeah. things like that. But that's that's how sort of television was in that era, right? Yeah. And that's not that long ago. It's not. It's not that long ago. Yeah. And so when people are like, oh, this guy's just living like a fantasy world. Well, and, and people could say, well, you know, the Internet's here now. We can't like take away the Internet. Yeah. But there are other things on the internet that are equally policed and sanctioned and done so quite effectively. I yeah. mean, people, people have to really like excavate and search the internet to try to find those things. Yeah. I mean, look, like YouTube's done it, right? Yeah. If you look at YouTube, YouTube's not like an outlet for porn. Yeah. Right? Yeah. If people want to like find porn, I would assume like it's, I'm sure it's not like easy for them to do, but given the state of like modern technology with sort of like machine learning and, you know, OCR and everything, yeah. everything that's available at their disposal. If there was like a serious movement to do this and there was a political and cultural sort of will to put that into place, I have no doubt that they could like, they could reduce a fair or healthy amount of that, right? Yeah, yeah. Especially the profound effects that, of course, I mean, right? in a negative way. But, especially, but, yeah. but the I know idea, that by I, like banner ads and stuff like that, just 
eliminating a lot of banner ads from yeah. websites would, would would help tremendously. But by extension, a lot of this uh, this his article was from the the Me Too movement and following that logic, right? Yeah, he was. I guess he was trying to follow it. I mean, I, I don't remember yeah. all the details of it. I don't but if, if you think about it, you think yeah. that if you want to really stop abuse of women, huh. you should ban pornography. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, one one would think like, and that was actually one of that. That was one of the really like interesting outcomes of just the discourse that emerged after Me Too, yeah. was that people were really outraged by just the way that women were being um, objectified and exploited in different industries. And the way that just men in various positions were able to sort of like get away with it, quote unquote. And obviously not all of like the indiscretions were equal. Positions, no pun intended. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, so, yeah, some of these, some of these things were like, you know, obviously not, not all of them were equivalent. And, you know, a lot of people were pretty skeptical about some of the claims and stuff like that. But setting that to the side, I mean, the idea is that one would think that that would offer an opportunity or an avenue to think through or consider traditional morality yeah like traditional religious morality and explore that as a potential solution for what's going on here right but that was never never even like given the time of day and in fact there was a very sort of like active awareness that we need to be able to like proceed with this movement while like um just like protecting ourselves against the possibility that like religious people and traditional religion will impinge or infringe on our movement yeah. and try to co-opt it to advance their own moral values, yeah. right? And their own ethics. And so what they ended up doing was it just, it all became about power and power differential, yeah. right? Like that, that, that's what the outcome became, right? And so there, there are all these other things about like, again, people today aren't really like, they don't really have a problem with just like open sexuality or sexual or sexual activities that occur outside of marriage. I mean, none of those institutions are really that important to people today. What's more important is that all of this sexual activity occurs within some sort of consensual confine, right? And the idea is that, well, what is consent? And now we're realizing that it's not an easy answer, right? It's, it's not that it's not an easy answer to establish. And in the Me Too discourse i mean they can say like look of course we never objected but there can't ever be a meaningful consent when there's like inequity right yeah, yeah. in like people's positions and things like that and uh, again that that's that's not always clear right and it, it presents a lot of difficulties to sort of modern sexual ethics and norms that's a dilemma because there is no criterion to follow i mean that's what it comes down of course. to if, if someone's a truth seeker yeah. You know, we talk about this all the time. Sim, you know, he, he was a really big advocate of this too. Yeah. And it's a, it, everything comes down to the truth, right? Are you seeking, like you were talking about, is it a power struggle? Are there people religious minded? Are they going to want the power to, to, to execute their agenda? But it's not about agendas. It's not about power. It's about, as for a believer, it's about truth seeker, right? Of course. What yeah. is the truth? And if, if there is a truth, then the truth has to come with a criterion, right? And these are constantly going to change. That's why I believe that this, uh, you know, Jordan Peterson, for instance, you yeah. guys are following what's happening, Jordan Peterson, and, you know, the, the banning of free speech that's happening, and he's, ad, you know, but the stuff that he's actually going through is actually pretty crazy, because, yeah. you know, we could lightly talk about, you know, the dilemma of just, you know, there's two genders, and why am I forced to know 33 yeah. or 32 different genders, and I can, it can be hate speech if I don't want to remember, you're forcing me to, but all of this, it, it, it's, it's so, uh, uh, you wouldn't imagine this 10 years ago that 
people are saying that I identify as this, even though I'm that, and and you can get in trouble for that. And now you, I mean, honestly, I don't know if you guys heard about this. People identifying as other like animals and stuff too, and people are <laughs> taking them seriously. People are really catering to it rather than seeing it as you know, yeah, a, he's a human being. This is a human being, and def- there's definitely some dysphoric issue occurring here, and they need some help. But now it's I met people that think it's a trend, you know, just to not identify as yourself anymore. No one no, wants to be. Did no you hear? No one's ju- comfortable being themselves. Did you anymore. hear Justin Trudeau said? Uh, someone in the, in the, in an audience where he uh, or some sort of uh, lecture he was talking, and he said uh, the question had the word mankind in it, and he said no, let's use people kind and be more inclusive to everyone. So. There, this is what the the logic of the left has taken us to. Yeah. Mankind is not an acceptable word anymore because yeah. it has man in there. Yeah, and even though grammatically and linguistically, Woman there's has no man inside of it too. No, yeah. but not only that, dude. Look at it on a linguistic. Like we're willing to surpass rules of what's apparent and what's reality universally understood. This is the problem. Mankind, linguistically and grammatically, isn't just talking about male. It's talking about everything that has to do with the human race. Male and female, right? So, and th- this is the problem. Now, we're not willing to uh, uh, use the apparent as a fact, and universally understood fact. For, for somebody to say, no, I'm actually not this, don't refer to me as a male. I'm not, even for the whole transgender movement, right? That, no, I'm now, no, you're, you're, you're a male, you know, and you became mm-hmm. a female, but that's fine for right yeah. now. Yeah. But for the sake of argument, don't make people uh, use terminologies that go against basic biology and universally understood facts right this becomes a problem now because in one one society goes in this direction now there's no such thing as reality what are you going to differ- what's reality anymore like what, what do we like are we supposed to just be okay with living in a dream for the rest of our lives and you're supposed to know all these things and you know how to refer to people as and what they have hold deep down i don't know what they hold. i can only judge from the outside if i see someone that's a female i'm gonna refer to her as miss and mister right because that's what i see but how do I know that you're feeling that and you're going to take me to court if I didn't even know who you are? I see you're a cash register and you, you know. So sorry for the rant, but what I'm trying to say is that this, the the people are not comfortable with themselves. We've forgotten ourselves, right? And the, the ayah still rings in my ears where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, Don't be like those who forgot Allah for Allah made them forget themselves, right? They don't know. People don't even want to feel comfortable for the fact of being a certain type of human being. It's not enough for them anymore. And then, since it's not enough for them, they're going to force people to live in that fallacy, right? In this dream world that has no uh, reality to it, right? And it, it, gets, it gets uncomfortable. I have to explain this stuff to my kids now, right? Yeah. And it, it gets really confusing. Um, <laughs> my kids uh, just joke with me and just say, did you just assume my gender? <laughs> like, yep, kids are talking about those little kids. How, so, how old are your kids? Uh, I'm kid you not. This is eight and ten years old. Wow. wow. Yeah. So, I mean, there's, there's a couple of things I'll, I'll mention. So, just going back for one second. So, the question of just morality, right? You know, one of the things that, like, people are very active or eager to be today is uh, is to sort of present themselves as, like, moral paragons, Right. They, they talk about today, they talk a lot of, about today just like um, sort of unearned moral superiority that people like really desire and are very eager to try to like grasp that. 
And so they'll do that by just dismissing other people on social media or presenting themselves as like the guardians of others, right? So a person can actually think to themselves that they're like advocates for some program simply because of articles they're sharing and they're better than other people because of a variety of circumstances, but they haven't actually materially done anything as part of those causes, right? But the only reason I bring that up is because there's this, I guess there's this term that's quite popular and I'm not this, I'm not too fond of it because I understand that it can come off like patronizing and stuff, but the whole like white knight term, right? There are a lot of Muslims that'll come out and try to present themselves as like the, these sort of like advocates for Muslim women today, right? And they'll say that like we're interested in like advancing what is in the best interests of our sisters and we're always going to be for them and stand alongside them and things like that. And one would think, that in the aftermath of something like Me Too, that would present for them an opportunity to be a moral guide. Yeah. When these types of articles and this type of discussion is taking place, they can stand up there and say, look, we see pornography as an objective moral wrong, and that it is having a devastating and a deleterious effect on society as a whole, and we we don't want to stand just on the side while this takes place. We have a vested interest for our sisters and seeing them not, we don't want to see them regularly objectified in this way. We don't see want to see women just regularly sexualized in Hollywood, in advertisements, in the media. They can present that type of voice. But it seems like the only thing many of these people are interested in going off on are like partitions, right? And so it rings very hollow to me. When they stand up there and say, oh, like, we're really, like, going to stand behind our sisters against everything that's, like, that they're having to deal deal with and everything that's, like, causing them trauma without having a word of, of objection to these, like, major social, like, institutions and structures that continuously undermine, like, their ability to live as dignified human beings. Yeah. I mean, how can you be a dignified woman in modern society with the way that you're given how women are portrayed, right? I mean, in the media, TV, ads, it's just, it's everywhere. It is unbelievable. It's almost as if we're uh, denying the fact and we're just politi- to, for the, to be politically correct yeah. and not, that's the only reason why we're nice to women yeah, in the society. That's what it seems like. Yeah, adolescent sexualization. I mean, adolescents are sexualized regularly now. Yeah. Like, they're not asked to, like, take off their clothes at the same level, but they're sexualized on TV yeah. too, right? Yeah. I mean, it, it happens. It, it is a complete and total program and project. And no one looks at that and says, wow, there's something, like, really, like, disgusting about this, right? And we should stand up and try to speak against it. Yeah. Like, where where are our voices in trying to like discuss this topic and take a strong position and build alliances and coalitions on that. I mean, you know, one of the things that'll upset me sometimes is when I see Muslim organizations or Muslim individuals like publish on, on outlets like the Huffington Post. Huffington Post is one of the most hypocritical outlets out there because, because they'll, they'll present themselves as like this big liberal, like pro women and women's advocacy outlet, but they'll also like publish articles on a regular basis of just like women taking off their clothes or like wardrobe malfunctions. And oh my God, look at like, look at like her, look at her response to being body shamed. And it's like, man, these guys regularly publish articles where women are, women are taking, like they're sexualizing and objectifying women all the time there. Right. They're treating them like meat the same way everything else, everyone else is. They're going after click counts. It's deplorable. 
It's deplorable it that deplorable. they get away with that type of thing. So I think we have an opportunity here to actually be a moral voice, right, as Muslims. But it requires courage, right? Because it, when we're doing so, we're militating against everything that's become normalized in broader society. Yeah. And that response to that New York Times article was a reflection of that because most people were really upset and really angry. And people did not want to even consider the types of proposals he was making. No, no, I'm, I want to pause now, right now. Just, just, oh, go ahead, go ahead. I was going to transition into the transgender conversation, yeah. if that's okay. Yeah, because because I think it there's sort of, I don't know if there's an intersection or whatever, but you brought it up. And so I, I think it's it's important to sort of bring up like, okay, Me Too and sort of the feminist uh, rhetoric and movement that we see today and then transgenderism. So transgenderism obviously is a very sort of complicated um, movement. It's it's really gained steam and headway over the last couple of years, right? And it's it's remarkable to think about because if it was like five years ago, really five years ago, this it wasn't really a thing, yeah. right? I mean, it was it's it's, it existed. Right. It, it existed. Thing now. You're right. But it's a movement now, right? Yeah. And there's a lot of popular support behind it. There's celebrity support behind it. There are there's social and cultural support behind it. There's you know there all it's, it's become it's become <laughs> a live yeah. discussion, right? And so, you know, we get we're thrust into it the same way the rest of society is thrust into it. And there are a lot of important questions, right, that that emerge from that. And so one of those questions that comes up is, well, what does it mean to be a male or a female, right? Now, for most people, that question was like rationally axiomatic. Well, it's just an extension of your biology. Whatever your sex is, that's what your gender is, right? And, uh, you know, there's, it's interesting because there are a number of critiques against transgenderism from different angles. And so there are a number of feminists that were very early in criticizing the transgender movement. And some of the feminists took strong, like, they, they really took offense to this idea that a person could just, like, psychologically adopt their identity right or who they are like the net sum of what it means to be a woman is just like putting on a dress or getting home hormone treatment or like you know um going through like an orchiectomy where a person like removes their genitals for a male or something like that right if the idea is that all it takes is a surgery like that's all it means to be a woman and they're like no being a woman means a lot more than that right and they're not just talking about socially they're talking about even biologically yeah of course right the ability or the like the reproductive potential that exists sort of in the female body yeah right um menstruation and all the, they're talking about all these things and they're saying like and so um there are some very prominent feminists who came out early right Germaine greer who's been really really strident on this issue and she's a very sort of famous feminist voice and one would think like just given her track record that she's earned enough credibility with people where when she offers these types of critiques, she would sort of be inoculated from like the really hardcore attacks from the left, but that hasn't been the case, right? And there's Sheila Jeffries. I mean, there's a couple of others as well. Um, and, you know, Camille Paglia, although some people would question whether or not she's like a true feminist. Um, but in any event, they the, the sort of term that they refer to them now disparagingly by is uh, TERFs. So it's trans-exclusionary radical feminists. Right. And so mm. they'll say, Oh, these are just like those turfs. Right. Wow. <laughs> and so it's a way of just like dismissing these wow. like people who have done nothing their entire career, but try to like push feminism and write academically on feminism. And they've committed their life to like feminism and like the advancement, quote unquote, whatever that means of women. Right. And like we wouldn't even like 
we would have major issues with their program, but still, I mean, that's what they've done their entire lives. And suddenly, like a word of critique against this trans movement, and they've been completely like just thrown off the boat, right? And so there's that critique. There's been a critique also, even from like certain like homosexual angles, right? So there's like the gay community that's like, look, don't like, um, don't just conflate us with your issues, right? Because we don't dismiss or we don't sort of look at gender the same way you do, right? Our identity is predicated on the notion that gender is a real thing and we're sexually attracted to the same one, right? Yeah. And so if you follow people like Andrew Sullivan, Andrew Sullivan's a very popular writer and journalist. He comes on programs like Bill Maher and stuff like that. If you follow his blog, he's he's constantly warning the left against this trans stuff. And he's saying, look, like this is too extreme a movement for middle America. And if you ever expect to like win the White House... And if you if you have like if you have like hopes of like becoming politically viable again, you can't make this a centerpiece of your political program. Like you have to keep this like at arm's length, right? Mm. And it's funny he had he had an article he has a blog that he writes and stuff, and so he had an article recently where he talked about like um, a lot of this like um, trans and just general like gender studies protest against the notion of a gender binary. And that those things are just like biologically related. And uh, he said those people are now protesting like events and programs that actually like advance what people in history have like always known, right? Men and women. And he said, he made a comment and he said, interestingly, he said, those protesters are not protesting outside like the studios of planet Earth, which mm. he's like, because in, in every animal species that they show, they show men, a male and a female and they show them with very like distinct roles in society, like right. in sort of like the animal life. Even with the chimps. And he's like, there's no <laughs> patriarchy that's brought that about. Yeah. <laughs> he's like, there's no, he's like, no one can blame like the way that animals live on patriarchy. Yeah. And he's like, and yet there's no, like, no one's out there like picketing planet earth to like stop recording and stop publishing <laughs> these videos. And very it was a, interesting point. It, it was just a funny wow. comment that he made, right? I'm sure a lot of people would object yeah, I, to that. There's a lot of wisdom in that though. That's yeah. awesome. But anyway, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> no, but I mean, f for us, it's, it's like, it's an issue, right? It's an issue. So, I mean, the biological, so there, we're seeing a lot of similarities between the transgender sort of playbook and the homosexuality playbook that sort of emerged in the 90s. So when homosexuality began sort of an active program of normalization, right, when sort of the gay lobby, right, as we know today, really took on um, really like sort of a public campaign and they started all those things up, you know, one of their earliest efforts was in advancing the notion that what they were was an extension of some sort of dispositional genetic, like, um, you know, that, that, that's what they were like. That was a genetic substantiation, right? It was how they were created. This was like a congenital thing for them, mm -hmm. right? And so why, and, and the reason was simple, right? If you look at the people who were the most strongly sort of opposed to gay marriage, it was always religion, right? Religion mm -hmm. was the reason for that. And it was the religious crowd that looked at that and said, well, that's not sort of a normal, like, um, you know, psychosexual orientation or lifestyle or arrangement, right? Like, that's not a marriage, right? That was, yeah. that was always the argument. Hey, well, that's, we're not going to call that a marriage because that's not how marriage is defined. And marriage is defined between men and women, whatever, right? Yeah. And so they said, well, you know, we were created this way, right? And God created us that way. So how can your religion, like, look at that disapprovingly, right? Like, how is that fair? And so that, 
they sort of spent enough time on that until it just became, um, it, it became in sort of the public imagination a fact, right? It became a fact to the general public that they just well, kept repeating the same narrative. Well, over the idea is most people today, to this day, look at if you were to talk to the average person about homosexuality, they'd say, well, in light of like what we know in, you know, sort of scientific studies and things like that, it, there is like a, there's a genetic source for this, right? Yeah. And if you were to tell them, well, actually, like, you know, like, the jury's still out, right? And that there is no like definitive like genetic source for sexual orientation, quote unquote, as then we know it today. Yeah, like if you were to tell them that, they wouldn't believe you. Yeah, they would think that you're still like you're just like uninformed and right? homo- but, and homophobic. Yeah, and so yeah, of course, mm-hmm. homophobic. But the idea is today, like the sort of gay lobby and homosexuality and all of that, just the discourse and how far it's come, they're not really in need of that as much. Right. They were they had to sort of appeal to that more often when religion was still like aggressively opposing them. And I mean, today, obviously, a lot of that has has attenuated quite significantly. I mean, even people talk about like Donald Trump being like this really like inveterate opponent of homosexuality and things like that. But he was the first Republican president during his inaugural address to mention like homosexuals and protecting their rights and things like that. And so, I mean, that was the first Republican president to do that. And, uh, you know, I haven't seen anything like from his administration that has sought to infringe on the sort of rights, quote unquote, of gay people. Right. And so a lot of people bring up this like religious freedom amendment, which was considered. And I know that there was some like conservative Republican and um, conservative religious like lobbies that were pushing for that amendment and for the president to try to you know, push that through via executive order or something like that. But it never gained any traction, number one. Mm. Number two, the entire amendment was about religious institutions and their ability to maintain their moral convictions and not have law um, force them or coerce them into giving those things up, right, as far as their institutions are concerned. And so, you know, that that's a separate conversation altogether. But in any event, you know, the idea is that homosexuality at one point needed the genetic, like, proof argument, and today they're just not in need of it. Right. And that's why even like modern sort of like queer scholarship, they'll insist like, so what if it's a choice? Like, yeah, it's a choice and it's our choice and we're making our choice. Big deal. Get over it. Right. Like whoever I want, I'm going to have sex with whoever I want to have sex with. And like, why do you, why do you have like an issue with that? Right. And that's being embraced more and more readily. Right. Yeah. There's a few, before you go any farther, I'm sorry. Because there's so many questions I have based on what you said. Um, the first one was before we changed, before we shifted gears to the transgender, transgender issue. You mentioned something saying that, you know, uh, we have to have a voice that talks about these things and, 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 you know, especially as far as pornography is concerned and it's debilitating youth and grownups and tarnishing marriages, for instance. But, um, a reply that I've heard from Muslims, for instance, is, that number one, that's not our priority right now is because we're already marginalized and we're going to be even more, you know, I don't specifically agree with this, but huh. what would your response be to saying that, you know, now we're going to be more marginalized. We're going to be those religious people. Now they're wanting to censor our, our viewership and our, our basically our, 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 what we view and they're already taking over, you know, and they're going to bring Sharia into it and all that stuff. So we don't even want to deal with this right now, right? Yeah. So, so, and I'm going to come to what you're talking about right yeah. now too. The second thing that, uh, I wanted to, uh, mention is, what was that? What was the second thing? 
was the last thing we were just talking about? The, I just mentioned the homosexuality and sort of the, yes, the so dispositionality say, of it. Someone will so, say that us as Muslims, mm-hmm. we're not even supposed to be even dealing with that issue right now because the biggest sin is not being Muslim. So we should our priority should be about <laughs> again. Yeah. I mean that's 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 coming from scholarship too. That's a problem. Yeah, that's, that's an issue. I should say, is that because yeah. open to kind of interpretation of what your priorities are. On the face value, it seems like a very nice point to say that we're, it's not even our job here as a minority of Muslims to deal with the issues that a people are going through that has to do with their sexuality. Rather, their Islam is far more important, right? And it's a it's a decent argument on the face value, both of these arguments. But um, there, there's, I think there's a, a profound way or a better way of having this discourse because that just kind of shuts it off. Yeah, Because a Muslim who's actually inclined to his deen is going to say, Hey man, we're, don't even worry about this stuff right now. You know, worry about bringing people into the fold, for instance. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I would disagree with both of those arguments for a couple of reasons, right? I think number one, this ocean of like, oh, we have more important issues to deal with. I would, I would sort of, I would sort of ask politely, well, what are those more important issues that we're dealing with, right? I would argue that this is one of the most important issues yeah. because if we do hope and intend to uphold our Islam, we have to realize that there are things that are in conflict, right, with it today. I think conceptually, the- intellectually, philosophically, and unless we're addressing the types of issues that undermine people's commitment and their submission to Allah Subhanahu wa Taala, then we're essentially like standing on the side while people's like like convictions sort of just go go away, right? Here's what they mean when yeah. when they say yeah. here we have more more important things to deal with. What they mean is, what, no, they mean <laughs> that we have to build an alliance with the left yeah. and we have to overlook this thing because building this alliance with the left is our safety. And that is the more important thing that that's really what they're trying to say that they kind of try to get you to shut up. Well, with. number one, like when did like when did like pro pornography become like a left position? Like are, are the left exactly. is like is like the political left like this strong like defender of pornography i don't know like i haven't i haven't seen that like number one like it's possible right that there are some like left-wing groups that are like really strongly like in favor of pornography but i would i would not take for granted or assume that all leftist groups are as pro-pornography as we assume them to be and i think many of them can be appealed to through reason and through our commitments that you, I think you'd be surprised how many people are actually in agreement on that. I mean, look, like I've, I've spoken to plenty of non-Muslim groups and interfaith groups and things like that. Well, I'll just bring up, I won't even bring up pornography, right? I'll just bring up like, like what's the purpose of cheerleaders at a sporting event? <laughs> right. Like seriously, like what You're do right. they accomplish? Like what, why does that, like, why is that still a thing? Right. right. I'll just ask them like, why, why are we okay with it? Why are we okay with women just like, like dancing around, right? Clearly, like you know, there's male cheerleaders now there too. Yeah, I mean, but it's not like the NFL is like. No, no one's there to see the men. Yeah, no one's not there to see the men. The men are there to throw the women in the air. Yeah, yeah. I mean, generally speaking, like to bring them higher. You know, it hasn't scaled. It hasn't scaled, right? Like no one. It's not like a normal thing that like you're going to go to sporting events. You're a cheerleader. You don't think of guy. You think of a girl in a skimpy outfit with pom poms jumping around and doing splits. And I'm sure, like, look, even, like, I'm sure a lot of people would be like, this is just, like, you know, 
politi- dumb political correctness, right? It's yeah, like yeah. I'm sure that's what people would say because they'd say, "Look, everyone knows what the purpose of cheerleaders yeah. are, right? They're to put or on the purpose of women that are holding up the cards of between boxing matches. Of course, of yeah, I mean, one, all two, of those things. I mean, for, I mean, uh, why isn't she? Just yeah, I mean, what, modest clothing and or Hooters. <laughs> yeah, well, well, what what's the pre- as if yeah. like a person can't keep track of like. Rounds. I mean, time's up. A guy sits in his corner. They come back and they fight. We're in a digital age. Why can't like, you just have it on screen? Wild yeah. Why, why, I mean, it's Wild so two. like it's such an absurd like proposition, Double right? Standards, man. Yeah, but I mean, because this whole, there's no criterion. This whole more important thing at the end of the day, what it boils down to is that plenty of Muslims are very expedient politically, and they recognize what's going to draw like land them in hot water, and they recognize what's not going to land them in hot water, and because they're concerned about losing favor with particular individuals, or having themselves subject to some level of scrutiny, they avoid they avoid those types of discussions and conversations. Now, I think that hurts us as a community on the aggregate. Because although I think a person needs to be wise with the type of things they discuss and the way that they discuss them, I don't think that a person can continuously avoid discussing existential issues that are facing the Muslim community and society as a whole, yeah. and then turn around and say that they're following the religion of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and that they're, you know, kuntum khayra ummatin ukhrijat nas like that, they're actually fulfilling what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has told them to live according to. Yeah. And it's just, I mean, there's a total lack of integrity there yeah total lack of integrity when a person's just going to sit there and say well you know uh, or someone's going even like i'll see this a lot with like homosexuality where like some sheikh will say yeah like i gave a lecture on the topic like a year ago or like i wrote a facebook post on it like whatever or i i've said something on it and so like my job is sort of like done right like i've i've done my piece to let muslims know like where they should sort of like stand on this issue as muslims right and um you know, that's that's not the attitude that they take towards, like, Islamophobia. You're right. It's not like, hey, you wrote something or you gave a lecture on it two years ago. Why do you keep posting on Islamophobia? <laughs> like, we already, that's like your 2015, like, lecture is still up. Like, if you're, it's not like, hey, look, I'm done talking about it. We have more important issues now. Like, I mean, and it's not as if, like, when people continue to post on Islamophobia, they're not offering, like, it's like, okay, have they changed their mind? Are they going to offer like a brand new take on Islamophobia? Everyone knows Trump said something. Okay, like, and then post comes out like just totally deriding Trump. Of course, like it's it's a predictable opinion that's going to be yeah. asserted. No one's sitting there like confused about like, hey, there's like a new angle that's being like offered. And that's why they're like offering a new commentary. Or when like, you know, people always talk about this when there's like a terrorist act or something like that. And everybody issues condemnations. It's like, okay, like your condemnation is not saying anything new, but that doesn't stop people from continuously like discussing it and offering guidance and talking about what the Quran and Sunnah really say and discussing these different groups. I mean, people realize that these are live issues and they continue to evolve. And it's like, look, the same like statement that I made in like the 90s for like the Taliban are not going to be like, I need to be able to offer commentary about ISIS, right? Because these things transition and there's waves and there's new like political issues and geopolitical conflicts and all of that. And I have to stay sort of in conversation with the world as things are taking place. And the idea is that just like that, there are other issues that are as important, right? And do, in fact, impact very seriously the sort of um, confidence that people have in their religion. And that's important, right? That's because important. when people when people lose confidence in what the Quran, and I mean, this is the thing, like especially with homosexuality and liwat, right? When we're talking about like same sex acts, 
right? Behavior. Yeah. Not just inclination, you're talking about the Someone could itself. be like a Quranist. Like we, someone can be a total like Quraniyun, right? They could be from that and they'd still have an issue with this topic. They'd still have an issue with this. Because we're not talking about an issue that's subject to all sorts of like ijtihadi ikhtilaf, right? I mean, the source of our, of like Islam's position on this has never been disagreed upon, right? There's some ikhtilaf on like the had, right? And what sort of the had supposed to be? Is there a had? Like there's some like, there's some like minor ikhtilaf that's occurred over the years on that type of issue, right? But no one has disagreed over whether or not same-sex acts are permissible or impermissible. Everyone's held that they're prohibited. Yes, but there's one one overlying factor that I've heard yeah. from the majority of the people. Yeah. And it's according with this. They say that, well, the same-sex marriage and stuff, hey, man, it's not affecting me. That's huh. that's that's what it's come down to, right? Because you mentioned something about integrity. And integrity yeah. for believers depends upon amr al-ma'ruf and nahi al-munkar. No matter yeah. what it is, when you see something wrong, you yeah. discourage it to the best of your ability. Yeah. Right? And I'm being light with my words. And we yeah. see, if you see something good, you try to promote it to the best of your ability. It doesn't yeah. only have to be religious. Anything that's good and wholesome yeah. for the people. But now you have this whole influx of people. Yeah, we're Muslims. It's haram. Yeah. But we live in this land. Yeah. It's not It's not affecting us. Yeah. What would you say to that? I, <laughs> well, I number obviously one, see so well, number one, in that argument. Well, but. number one, it obviously does affect us. But even setting that aside, that is such a hypocritical take. Because those people... If Before one, we move on to the hypocritical, how is it affecting us? Well, it affects us in a number of ways, yes. right? Number one, it, like this idea that we can just sit or stand outside of it is a joke, right? And yeah. that's that's a point a number of people have made, like this idea that we can just sort of like sit in our yeah. churches, quote unquote. It's not and affecting not, me. As yeah, long as it's it, not affecting me, it's it all does, good. It does, right? So you're seeing like public school curricula that get affected. Yes. You're seeing institutions that people tend to interact with being affected. You know, I went to the airport. I went to Dulles Airport, something like that. There's in DC area, Dulles Airport. I remember it was like last year or something like that. And they're on like the webpage. They had like this, like they had like uh, um, sort of the rainbow flag and some like LGBT statement or whatever. And I just thought like, you know, I've never gone to an airport thinking like, I wonder where they sit on like this subject. Yeah. <laughs> Which just tells you, I mean, it just, it just, <laughs> it just shows you, it shows you how far and wide this is spread because the reality is like your work, for instance, right? Like a person could in fact lose their job over something like this if it yeah. becomes an issue that parallels racial discrimination. The idea is like, frankly, if, if I'm a racist and I have public racist statements, then there is cause. Yeah. And there's code of conduct guidelines and ethical guidelines in every single corporation in this country yeah. that could potentially be brought to bear against yeah. employees that have those types of ideas and positions. And the idea is that there is, there's a very strong movement to parallel between those two things. Yes. In addition to that, when we talk about, well, what's discrimination, quote unquote, right? If you look like today, like the Supreme Court is adjudicating the masterpiece cake shop case, right. which is the case of the baker in Denver, the Denver area. And, uh, you know, he was asked to make a gay wedding cake, right? With sort of all the symbolism and everything that goes into that. And he said, no, he said, I don't, I don't want to do it, right? He refused to do that cake. He said, I don't mind making you another cake. I don't mind selling you anything here. I'm not, I'm not saying like no gays allowed type of yeah, sign in the store. Exactly. I'm just saying I don't want to make the cake for your wedding. Yeah, it's my business. Right? I can have principles. Yeah. And they filed a lawsuit against him for discrimination. He's found guilty. This has been appealed multiple times and it's sitting in the Supreme Court today. Mm -hmm. And there's a question of, okay, like 
in what I thought it was form ineffective yeah there, there's a real discussion about like in what way should religion be accommodated or not accommodated in the public square yeah and that's always subject to tension and negotiation and debate and we have a lot at stake there too i mean imagine an islamic school and you had a teacher there and that teacher sort of came out the closet and that teacher said i want like i want to be affirmed as part of this school and we said well I mean, we can't keep this teacher on board anymore yeah. right especially if it's like if it's you know, again, it would be one thing where it's kind of like, you know, we, we'd have to deal with it on a case-by-case basis, yeah. right? right? There may be someone who's more looking at it and still sort of upholding what Islam says. And we'd say, look, like you should sort of disabuse yourself of the identity or rid yourself of that. Just call yourself a Muslim and, you know, we can sort of work with that, inshallah, you know. But again, if someone's looking at like moral affirmation... Right. And looking at like, I want my identity be, to be fully affirmed okay. by this institution and things like that. We would have no choice. Yeah. And that's typically when people come out the closet. That's the type of thing that they want yeah. from the people, the, from the person that they're speaking to. And so are Islamic schools and masjids and other places authorized to do those types of things? Masjid. If you had a same sex couple that came to your masjid and said, well, you have a multi-purpose hall that can be reserved at a cost where a member of your masjid, right? We pay our dues or whatever, right? Membership dues that this masjid has. And we want to rent the hall for our same-sex wedding. And you as a masjid say, well, we're not going to have a same-sex wedding in our masjid. Yeah. You got to be out of your mind, right? If a masjid were to say something like that, well, is that discrimination, right? I mean, seriously, that's that, not that's, that's that's a what complicated the, case. Isn't right? that what the ruling will, the, the adjudication will actually be used as a precedence for Potentially, Future, I mean, potentially, like this. But of course, the thing, though, like there's the example, a potential. I was talking to my friend, my friend about this, right? And I was telling him how we were having coffee like a month ago, and I was telling him how like it was kind of sad that like I felt like very few Muslims were behind. Muslims should have like lined up behind this cake, of course, this shop, yeah. this cake owner shop, right? Yeah, yeah. Totally. totally, right? And totally. he was like, "Why?" Yeah. He's like, "No," because he's and he's like, "Listen, yeah. I, if I was a cake owner, I just would have said something else. I would have said we're overbooked. What if it's like discriminatory? Like when you're in a job interview, right? Yeah." And listen, they don't accept you because you're Muslim. They're not going to like say that we're, we're rejecting you because you're because the guy's like a, he's like either he's not down with Muslims or whatever. He's going to say you're not qualified. Like you could make some excuse of like why this hall isn't available. Like yeah. if you you know oh well, but at like, some point they're going to know, yeah. right? I mean, a person can say, look, uh, if you don't if you don't admit it though, can they do something? If you can say, I'm like, sure at some point they would just say, look, it's obvious prejudice because he's not giving yeah. me a single available date. That's still you can say, look, we're booked for like the next year. Yeah, and That's then what I would say. and then to keep up the pretension, you're just not going to like allow anyone to reserve yeah. the hall just because we're not doing weddings at the masjid anymore. I mean, it would be like mm, again, yeah. it's going to be very difficult. Yeah. It's going to be very difficult to hold up, right? Because yeah. at some point people are going to know like the reasons behind it, right? And that's the thing. Like it's, and plus you, you should be honest with what your beliefs are. I mean, why should you be be bullied into accepting something that that you you find completely antithetical to your beliefs? Because there ain't no, no, no such thing as freedom no, expression. There's an, also another thing that I think is yeah. um, you know infringing on me. You know how Sheikh Hamer was saying that you know it's not affecting me, it's not bothering me. But there's also a whole. Uh, revisionist uh, culture that's happening where there's revisionist history exactly. on changing the sexuality of historical figures like Alexander the Great and all these other people who are now being uh, told yeah. as as uh, as homosexuals that that, that that wasn't true at all. They of were, course, you know Richard Pryor. And I'll tell you, I'll, I'll tell you what's like a really disgusting component of this conversation today where that, that sort of surfaces as well is that for religious figures of any sort, of any stripe, 
if you come out and you're like really vocal and critical against like homosexual acts, right? And you try to write on it and things like that. One of the first reactions that you're going to have to deal with are people who just try to like write you off as like a closet homosexual and call your sexual sexuality into question and things like that, which is so bizarre because I'm like, you know, as much as these people are like opposed to like homophobia, they're willing to like, they're actually willing to like traffic in it on their own when it serves their own purposes, which is really a disgusting thing. I mean, it's, it's, um, it's childish, it's stupid, but whatever. But getting back to the point, so, I mean, it obviously does affect us. It affects our institutions, it affects us, it affects our own sort of confidence in religion. Because when, number one, the idea that a person can actually publicly have a commitment and say, look, as a political matter, I believe X. Yeah. But as a private matter, I believe Y. Yeah. And X and Y are in direct conceptual conflict. Yes. Right? At some point, X or Y is going to like, win out yes for that person and the reality is that when people like the one that is like a public expression the one that i feel confidently asserting in the public square of society has more meaning to me than the one that i've just like harbored away in my heart right and the reality is like there's a question of like have they even harbored it like how long is it before that's sort of gone and before people look at it and they say you know well i'm not really that convinced by what islam says or I'm not really sure that that's really what the Qur'an intended, right? Those types of, so people become like vulnerable to revisionist arguments that have never existed in history and are like not really credible interpretations of the Qur'an to begin with, right? So there are serious consequences for us as a community, both at like sort of the civic level in the way that we're able to manifest just our own vision of what it means to be, uh, our own vision of Islam, right? And what Islam says, right? Because Islam does have a real definition mm-hmm. and has a real notion of truth, an objective notion of truth. And that's, we don't say that like that's our Islam, that's just Islam as a whole, yeah. right? Certainly there is like ikhtilafat and stuff like that, right? But at the end of the day, we have a, a discrete notion of what Islam says on this particular issue and we want that to materialize in certain ways where it can be upheld, right? So that's number one. Number two is we have a community of people that are struggling with this issue, right? And they're struggling with how do I reconcile what is being presented to me as a natural, sort of like really healthy relationship, right? With this sort of religion that wants to prevent two people from fulfilling their sort of deepest desires. Mm. So, right? It almost, note, though, it almost comes off inhumane, right? right I right. mean, they're callously inhumane, yeah. right? Well, that's why a lot of imams, I think, are yeah. kind of tiptoeing the issue because they don't want to blow those guys out of the deen. That's what yeah. they're saying. Yeah, yeah but right. I mean, at the but, end of the but, day, but like... they're not telling them the action they're performing is good. They're yeah. saying, we're understanding you have these issues. They See, the problem is not if you even say you need therapy, you can get in trouble, man. That's yeah. the problem. Well, I I, th- I think the... So maybe, like, I remember like... 10, you you mean conversion ago. therapy, right? You mean gay conversion therapy. No, yeah. so the, the conversion is one thing. But to say, to mention, to say that, hey, maybe some type of therapy can help you. Yeah. Right? Like, wait, was there something wrong with me now? Yeah, to describe right. it as like a pathology or yeah. something like to, that to, would be a problem. To describe because, pathologically yeah. is a problem, right? Now. Yeah, but even so, but no. even before we get there, one other thing, one other way that it affects us, because a person will say, well, you know, let's just let public society do whatever they want. Let's just like focus on ourselves and things like that. Yeah. One of the reasons that, that becomes such a hypocritical line of exactly. thinking and reasoning is because that is not like if that was true and it doesn't affect me, well, immigration bans don't affect you, right? For the most part, right? I mean, you're here, right? Why do you care? right? The 1% and, you know, Occupy Wall Street and all that, that doesn't affect you, 
Why, why, do you, why would you have any political program to begin with? Yeah. What would be the point? Why would you oppose wars? You don't, doesn't, this war doesn't affect you, right? You're not being enlisted into the military. There's no draft, right? I mean, seriously, like what, what impact does it, what bearing does it have on your immediate life? Any, any position that you take. Yeah. This is a person that will have no problem taking a strong position on abortion or the legalization of marijuana, right? Like all of these issues they have positions on, yeah. right? Gun ownership. Yep. But on this issue, it's like, oh, this doesn't affect me. Well, I mean, all of these other issues only affect you on a very limited level, yeah. if at all. Yeah. And when people actually do take stances on those other issues... Yeah. They take them in ways that are rooted in notions of like higher values and morals. There's a transcendent component to it. Mm. It's the right thing to do. Mm. When people talk about MLI, they don't talk about MLI dispassionately as like, look, this is like a geopolitical conflict that this like undermines. And we just like need to think about it secularly. We talk about it from the perspective of it like disenfranchising human beings and it siding with the oppressor and like we're talking about it in very like stark terms because we recognize there's a very deep moral component to all of this and we're bringing those to bear we're bringing those to the table and saying that this is why we have to be an upright community and an upright people mm. right so when people will talk about feeding the poor and social programs and all this type of stuff they're doing it with active reference to belief Active reference to belief. Now, whether they're quite quoting the Quran and Sunnah or not, there's still beliefs there. And the idea is that in every single political position you have, you bring your beliefs to the table. But in this one, you're saying, you know what? I have to leave my beliefs at home. Yeah, I always found that but, so interesting. But in reality, what that actually represents is itself a belief, right? Because what it's saying is that I can actually subordinate, right? At the end of the day, like, and I can privatize and personalize, like, this view, and I can have, like, a public position that's very different from it, right? And that, that has all sorts of assumptions associated with it, right? There are a lot of assumptions that are just embedded in that type of reasoning, and that itself becomes a type of belief that a person's advancing. And so the idea is that a person didn't, like, a person didn't privatize a belief. All they did was, um, remove one belief for another. They just exchange them, right? Mm. That's, that's all they've, that's all they've actually done, right? And that's why people will talk today about like how when someone doesn't take like a position politically, like they have the privilege not to take a position, right? They'll talk about how yeah. like, how like that's a very hollow, like that's, that's very hollow rhetoric yeah. because not taking a position is a position, right? Not voting is a choice. Yeah. There's a recognition that like every single choice a person takes so, is uh, in fact like taking a position on something. So, but on this, people think they're not taking a position, which I think is just will be yeah, bogus. So uh, just 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 to make it make yeah. more sense to yeah. people, I think what you're trying to say is like, for example, if I just tell my wife, "Hey, I'm into homosexual acts," right, and she's repulsed <laughs> by it, okay. And then she goes out in the public and she'll say, oh, that, you know, it's perfectly normal behavior. This is, doesn't affect me or anything. This is what you're talking about, right? In the public and the, the private, uh, sphere of, you know, you're con holding contradictory beliefs that are, um, diametrically opposed to each other. But just because you want to be accepted in society, you're, you're, 
you're maintaining face. I think it's a little a little more different than it's like politically yeah. on a political level because it had, a lot of it has to do with politics. You're saying, hey, you know, everyone has a right to their own sexuality over the cases. I'm not going to treat anybody differently. Right. Yeah, I, I mean, think about it this way. Right. If there was a referendum, which there have been right in sort of my local district and that referendum had to deal with the establishment of uh, casinos. Right. As a Muslim Perfect example, Perfect as example. a Muslim, yeah. I would vote that down. Yes. Right? Even though there's a tax potential, and usually they attach it to taxes, right? Yep. They'll say, hey, by the establishment, we're projecting this much money brought into the state, and we're going to direct that towards parks yeah. and schools and libraries. And it's like, wow, it seems like a very like virtuous thing to do, right? <laughs> but as a Muslim, I believe that there are negative consequences that a casino brings to society. Like the, the, the sort of like complexion of society is affected, right? Society is affected. The culture is affected. Right. right, and and in negative ways, in ways that are undesirable to me, undesirable to my family, undesirable, and undesirable to a lot of people, not just me. Right, plenty of people recognize the fact that like a casino has the potential to actually like erode the sort of social stability of a particular place. Right, and encourages like really bad behavior and poverty and things addiction. like that can can come in like really rapidly because you know. Gambling becomes an addiction just like substance abuse, right? There's very strong parallels between those two, right? And a person doesn't look at that and say, well, you know, that's just like, let people want to gamble, gamble, right? I mean, no one, I mean, we would hope that people, Muslims wouldn't say, well, you know what? I'm just going to vote for the casino because I want people to be able to do what they want to do. I don't want to impose, quote unquote, my values on them. But what they've done is they've actually imposed something on us. Yeah. Because now the casino's there, yeah. and that's my neighborhood too. Yes, right? Right. and it's like I've—I'm uh, the subject of imposition. You feel like someone's right? almost yeah. kicked you out of your home, like yeah. Just... I mean, like, the, and that's the whole notion of like positive and negative rights, right? They talk about this a lot, like, well, whose rights are going to be privileged and prioritized, right? Is it going to be my right to own a gun, or is it going to be my right to live in a society that's gun-free? And safe, quote unquote, like there's, there's an active like benefit to safety that comes when random individuals can't just go to like gun shows and pick up guns, right? And so there's always a competition between rights. And the idea is that when people actually talk about this, they're actually smuggling in their notion of rights as being the only rights that matter. Yeah. Right? Whereas that's not our discourse at all, right? And this is, this is why when Muslims. We can't get caught up in that discourse, I should say too. Of course, right? And this is why Muslims have to be very careful today with how they even view their own Islam, right? And what it means to be a Muslim. Because, like, for most Muslims, the most important thing in their minds today is the establishment of a strong sort of civic political program. Like, people want to be, people want to be politically viable as a community. Yeah. They want to be assimilated into society in a way where we're not differentiated simply because we're Muslim, right? We want that sort of animus to go away, right? And that is the singular focus of most Muslims. And while doing that, we're sort of campaigning against Islamophobia, which is a very problematic term. And we're referring to ourselves as part of these like leftist coalitions as just another another identity category, right? So, hey, you can be like gay or trans or... Whatever, you can be this, this, that, you can be Latino, you can be black, and then you can be Muslim, right? But those, those different identity categories, Islam is disanalogous, right? Because Islam is a set of beliefs. Yeah. Right? That's what defines us. It's not a race. It's not ethnicity. There's a set of beliefs that define what it means to be a Muslim. Yeah. Right? But when we're looking at ourselves purely through an identitarian lens, 
those beliefs actually take a back seat. And the idea is, well, no, anyone who calls themselves a Muslim is a Muslim. Yeah. Right? And your meaning of Islam, my meaning, like people can discover their own truth, right? That's like yeah. a popular thing today. Yeah. It's seen as like a really like high-minded sort of altruistic way of seeing the world is that everybody's like free to sort of like discover and like embrace their own truth. No, we have competing visions of what the truth is. Yeah. And we believe ours to be right. We believe theirs to be wrong. Yeah. And we shouldn't be like afraid to like state that. Yeah. And state that with some level of confidence, yeah. right? I mean, I don't know. SubhanAllah, like, you know. But the problem with Muslims, is unfortunately, the defeatist uh, yeah. aspect to this is that if you're, t- as a Muslim, to make that statement, what you just said, our way of truth is right and everyone else is wrong, or yours is wrong, for instance, they're so afraid of that statement because they automatically assume if you have to make that statement, you're a jerk to everybody. <laughs> I mean, well, that's, that's a problem. Right, because we're not taught to be jerks to anybody. We actually are supposed to be compassionate and merciful to people who can't see the truth. We see it as as somebody who has doesn't have any vision and they need help to walk. Right? Yeah. And we are the people. As soon as they hold on to us, we should be those people. When we hold their hand to cross the street, then they see something a little more clearly. Right? The dust settles a little bit, but they automatically think that you know you have to be a jerk if you say that, or you are a jerk. Right? Yeah, because um, I think that's a narrative of the, the greater culture. That is the narrative. And like, if you There's say no that, way around it. If you're saying that what I believe is the truth, obviously that implies what you believe is false. That's why I tell people who I disagree with on religion. Huh? I was like, I'm more proud of you as a Christian if you think I'm going to hell than if you think I might go to heaven. You know, I agree with you 100%. No, I agree with you 100%. <laughs> you know what I mean? I agree with you 100%. I love, honestly, man, I love the aspect of Christians that will believe their principles so well they're not going to waver because i'm in front of them right yeah. dude i can actually be very good friends with that person i'll be honest with you yeah i mean I'll, I'll, I'll be honest like a lot of muslims are like they're um they'll like criticize and have a lot of contempt for conservative christian groups yeah but i look at some like i look at the catholics right yeah. and what they've had to deal with for the past decade plus on abortion yeah and i say you know what that that's a lot of integrity right that they've tried integrity. To, and they have right. paid the price they have paid the price They've continuously taken and regularly. Yes. And they have been the subject of all sorts of like snide commentary and yep. open ridicule. Yep. And they have, you know, for by and large, they haven't wavered right now. Again, some of that's changing with Francis and the messaging and all that. But, you know, plenty of them ha- are holding on tight. Right. Yep. And recognizing, look, this is what this is what we believe life means. Yes. Which isn't a small thing. Yeah. We believe it's not, life it's the grandest thing starts in this world. here. Yes. Right? Like that's, I mean, people who look at this as just like, uh, like, and look at like Catholics and say, oh, like they're just being like irrational and imposing values and stuff. We're talking about life and death. Like that's not like a, like for people to not be able to appreciate like why that discussion has some meaning to them. Yeah. It's just crazy to me. I mean, I'm, I just, I, I almost like, I have a difficult time with those people because I'm like, wouldn't you, don't you think like life and death is an important issue? Don't you think like if you, if you like, if you fervently and adamantly believed that like life was being taken, like wouldn't you like care enough to like vocalize that position, right? Certainly people do in other areas, right? But, you know, people, you know, this idea that people are just scared of being like pariahs because of like where we sit today given Islamophobia and everything else, well, people have to get like a bit of a backbone here, right? I mean, that's just what it takes. Look, That's key. And look, no one's, no one's saying that we have to be like, like evangelicals, right? For instance, on gay marriage, or we have to be like Catholics on abortion. Like we're a small community. It's not, but 
for us to at least have positions that we are regularly sort of like broadcasting and asserting and submitting and putting forward for our community and for others in a intelligent, thoughtful way, right? Not sort of like rough and like unfettered and all that, right? Not not rude, right? Just putting that forward. If that's going, if like the de facto position is that anybody who says or believes in a truth is being a jerk, that then we we have to be able to live with those consequences yes. of what that means. People at the police, right? People at the police in the Muslim society at the police is against religion all the time, right? Oh, they're so arrogant. Religious people yeah. are, right? If that's like the de facto uh, assumption, right, of religious people that these people are arrogant because they because they think they're right. Well, that doesn't mean that I'm just going to stop thinking that I'm right. Yeah. Because you think that that's an but arrogant position. Right. Atheists think that they're of right. Of course, right? Everyone thinks well, that they're right. Yeah, and even you if think, you don't believe, and you think you're right. Like they, those people think yeah. they're right on a variety of issues yeah. too. No and they one can be very condescending too. Yeah, no, no one lives in like this, like like plastic, sort of infinitely malleable world of like, yeah, I just have like some views here and there. But I, because even if someone did that, even if someone said like every single thing I think about the world, I don't think is a truth. I just think it's like a view that I'm like sort of holding on to. Even that, like that sort of like relativistic notion of truth, that itself is a view that they think is correct. Yes. Right? That, that's, that's one note. They, they think that's correct. Yes. They think it's correct to accord everybody equal weight in the marketplace of ideas. Yeah. No, and I'd say like, no, like, okay, but you've just taken a position that you think's right. And I think that position's wrong. Like, so, you know, who's, who's to like, Who's to suggest who's right and wrong, right? And this is like, this is the idea that like we should, we should be able to participate in this. And look, like if people are concerned about the fact that like, look, we're sort of minority and, but we still have to come out on difficult issues. Well, that was what all of the MBA had to do as well. Exactly. Right. That's what like, that's what the sort of prophetic quote unquote sort of model has been and the prophetic metal and the real sort of notion of what it means to, you know, people talk about like prophetic politics, right? Cornell West always talk about prophetic, you know, social justice efforts and things like that. But that's like a really like, it's a really like modern sort of contemporary notion of like, it's, it's a total Mm co-option of what it means to be prophetic for us. What it means to be prophetic is like following the Sunnah, looking at the Anbiya, looking at Quran and Sunnah and looking at how how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala told us that they lived their lives and how they had to confront their society and the wrongdoings and the transgressions that were present there. And And endure the tests, endure the tests that that, that came along with it. And those weren't convenient, right? I mean, for anybody to suggest that those were convenient issues for any of those Anbiya, I mean, the Prophet sallallahu is... As good an example as any, right? Where the yeah. Prophet Sallallahu has to come out and like, like speak against things that are normative in his own society, right? And he suffers a lot as a result of it, right? Sort yeah. of his family life, his personal life, right? His safety, safety of his followers, right? Why, why did the Prophet Sallallahu have to go through all of that? that and, that's the exact point. Why? Cause he was yeah. holding a position. See, we talk about yeah. positions, right? Yeah. Everything has to, we use the word position in a few different ways, but yeah. when we're talking about position now, you have to hold a position. And I think this, this a lot of people don't like talking about this, but I'm going to mention it anyway, yeah. is that number one, we know as a believer, you have to hold a position because that's the human thing to do. Whatever you believe in, you should hold on to your position as long as you're convinced of it, yeah. right? Generally, all human beings, if they're convinced of something, that's their position. They should hold on to it, right? Yeah. As believers, we have a position. Now, the dilemma here and the question that here comes about is where, you know, it's a bold statement where I can agree with 
you know, what the far right may be saying is that, listen, these Muslims, they have a certain way of life. And this way of life, they're not willing to waver on. And this way of life is, a, is, is something to them, so dear to them, that they're not even willing to waver when somebody uh, has free speech against their prophet, even though it's insulting their prophet. Somebody who died 1,400 years ago, they're still holding on to this personality more than they love their own family, more than they love their children. They're we convinced hope. of God. We hope, right? We, no, yeah, of course. Yeah. But that's what's expected from us. Because of course. That's the, I mean, people who is, resources, they know the text better than Muslims do. Right? Yeah, I mean, this, well, this is the thing, right? I mean, what what we're asking of Muslims is not a small ask, it's not, right? But, but because let me we're not just, what I was saying, yeah, yeah. Just to your point, we're not just asking people to like submit to the Prophet Sallallahu message and follow his example. We're asking Muslims to love him more than they love themselves. Exactly. Which is exactly. which is a, which if people are yeah, like but that's the bare minimum. If people though. are just like sort of like wavering left and right, yeah. and like that, taking these type of like mediatory minimum. and like like really that's, thin positions, how, how is that even going to help? But see, right? but that's yeah. the bare minimum. And I'm glad you brought that up because I talk to Muslims now huh. that say, wait, why would Muhammad Sallallahu tell us to, huh. isn't he supposed to be a modest person? Yeah. Why would he tell us to love him more? And he said, none of us are believers until we... You know, I am more beloved to you than your mother, your father, and your children, everything yeah. that you have. You know, ajma'in, right? yeah, and all of mankind. All right? of mankind. Yeah. So there's such a gap in understanding what love actually is and what modesty actually is according to Sharia. I mean, we're pretty far. But the, what I'm trying to say here is that the change that you're talking about, this is natural for a believer to have in any society, whether it's living in an Islamic society or a Muslim society or non-Muslim society. Now the question comes about is, which non-Muslim academics have talked well, Shaykh about. Shaykh before you, since you raised the question, you got to answer it. What? what? That scenario you just raised. I will. I will okay. talk about right. it. I will talk about it. Inshallah, we'll get no, to no, it. Yeah, I yeah. will. Yeah. Because that's a, that's a beautiful discussion on its own. But the yeah. question now we have to ask ourselves is, is it that Muslims that are living in a society... How long can they live out of their natural habitat? Right? This is a question that's asked. Like that al kufr or something like that? Yeah. That, that's a, because that's, <laughs> no, no, you're right. Even, even Nixon, even Nixon, he talks about, you know, living in Dar al kufr and Dar al Islam and Dar al Harb, he calls it, right? Yeah. But guess what? Muslims, the reason why there is this dilemma and this friction is you have to look at the two mindsets. There's one mindset that says, hey, wherever we go as Muslims, we're just going to have to acclimate and we're just going to be like this for the rest of our lives. Right. There's another group of Muslims that says, no, this is just temporary, yeah. but we have to make sure that society is an Islamic society as such, that from the so from the sovereignty down to the bottom, our goal as Muslims in this world is the only way that we can practice our religion to the most part is if that actually occurs, right? Yeah. So how long can Muslims actually live in a society huh. that's not an Islamic sovereign society? That becomes, I think that's a question people don't like to talk about. Because they're going to feel to be marginalized. They're afraid to be associated with certain groups. But that's a question that has to be asked, I think. Yeah. If we're serious about something. Because these are all problems, that's true. And I'm not saying even in Islamic society there weren't problems. There were, yeah. There's always going to be problems. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? It's always going to be there. But the way to change the mindset, yeah. and we see now, and the, the, everyone that controls stuff is from the higher-ups of where policy and sovereignty takes place. That's the best way to change somebody's heart, actually. So even non-Muslims... That are mm -hmm. academics ask this: How long can these Muslims stay here, you know, and, and and actually be comfortable with their, 
with the, with their Islam. Yeah, I mean, right? it's, it's it, well, I think there's two sides to that. I'll get back to the question, but I yeah. think there are two sides to that. I think, I think obviously we'll hear that from some like neocon groups that like yeah. Muslims, if they stay here, they're just going to stay here in sort of continued state of contempt for society. And we can't like continue to tolerate this sort of like, what is it? What do they call it? fifth column or whatever, right? Yeah. The, right. This idea that there's just like this group that has this ongoing and abiding hatred for our values, quote unquote, and whatever that means. Yeah. Like there's that question. You'll look at leftist groups who will argue against that. Yes. And they'll say, no, no, no. Muslims are just like us. Look at how embracing they can be of our values. And so they present leftist Islam or liberalized Islam as the antidote to this issue. And Which they say, has very molecular weight of Islam inside and, of it. And they're, willing, and they're willing to say, like, look, like these sort of like groups that you're focused on, like that's like, that's the minority, right? Yeah. They're a marginalized group. Th- these people will come around, just give them time. Yeah. And to be honest, like if we're just being honest about things, they're probably right. I mean, just given the way that trends have been going, like most Muslims probably will come around to exactly what their expectations are. Now, you know, I, I'll say that your question is not a trivial question in terms of like Dar Islam, Dar Harab, and things like that. Um, we've sort of abandoned that dialogue and discussion. It's funny because in the 90s, it was like super active. Yeah. Right. Right. I mean, it was very... you were allowed to talk about it. You know, well, not just you were allowed to talk about it, but even after 9-11, I mean, you would go to lectures and things like that. And, you know, at some point, someone would bring up the question of, hey, like, are, is it permissible to live in Dar Islam, Dar Harab, and stuff like that, or a non-Muslim society? And generally speaking, I still remember, generally speaking... A lot of the answers would be along the lines of, yes, provided that you are working towards the advancement and the spread of Islam. That a person has to be contributing in some way to da'wah, right? Like there's this, like we have to proselytize and broadcast yeah. what Islam is. And pr- so long as we're doing that, we're fulfilling the sort of conditions that are required of us to like live in this society. Again, I know most people don't care about that, but as a person who does live here, like you should, I think as Muslims, like we should actually take that type of responsibility seriously, right? Well, that's been disappeared with the message. That, Uh that, what you just explained, that latter part, it's completely dropped off. Now it just says, Yes, yeah. of course we're allowed to stay well, in, the, well, in the West or any country in the West. Like, I'm American. You well, know, well, it's funny because, caveat. Well, like, it's funny because I remember back then when we heard that, we'd say, Alhamdulillah, like, it was almost like, yeah, like, of course, like, that's what most of us are already doing, especially yeah. people who are, like, at a conference or at a masjid or something like that. I mean, just, it's funny to think about because if you think about back sort of in sort of immediate post-9-11. That's why I brought it up, yeah. Yeah, post-9-11, immediate post-9-11. <laughs> if you were just to think of, like, centrist Muslims, quote-unquote, whatever that means, right, just like the mainstream institutions that Muslims were a part of, right? One of like the main initiatives and programs was like Discover Islam. Yeah. And if you remember them, there were like the what? There were at least 20, they may have been like 70 something posters, right? And like nice images and stuff. And they were describing what it meant to be a Muslim. Like, like why does, what does Islam say on this? What does, not all of them were perfect, right? But it was taken for granted yeah. that we need to like spread Islam, right? Kara was like disseminating Qur'ans, right? All of the stuff was just, these were like, these were just, you know, Islam Awareness Week on yeah. campuses. Yeah. Islam Awareness Week on campuses used to actually be about spreading Islam, yeah. right? <laughs> I mean, seriously, that's what the week was actually about. Like we do like da'wah tables on campus yeah. and we'd have, like that's actually what it was. Whereas today, like that, like the MSAs that are still doing it, it's just like a vestige of like what used to exist. It's just been going on for so long that it's just they're keeping up the tradition. But there's very little active da'wah that actually gets done, if any, right? Most of it's just social justice activities, yeah. right? Yeah. And so they'll do like Islam Awareness Week. First, first event, we're going to go like hiking at a park. Second event, we're going to like 
get together with group X or Y to work on whatever like social justice project and it's like where is like where is the Islam no, where is the Islam no, in this so week so in like 10 years changed that much because we've been oh, yeah. in school like no, it was a little years. disheartening man I, went, oh, yeah. I, I, I talked that. to I talked oh, to an yeah. MSA and like I mentioned the MSA one of the days were devoted to changing ethnic foods and that was their MSA day yeah like that's like and exchanging that's, ethnic that's foods super. from different that's a super common type of thing yeah. because it's it's so like non-controversial, right? It's so like easy and nice and comfortable that those become like really appealing days to have, right? And so, you know, um, again, it, it just goes back to sort of this whole issue of like, hey, where should we live and things like that. Now, getting back to the question of where should we live, right? The, the reality is, and this isn't, this is not, um, this is not a small component of this conversation is yeah. that we're living increasingly in a sort of, we're witnessing in front of us a global sort of monoculture that's yes. emerging, yes. right? And the challenges that we are experiencing here are now being experienced in spades. Yes. In Muslim majority countries. Exactly. And in those societies, those issues can actually be more difficult to overcome. Right. When you're in the midst of Lebanon and they're having a gay pride parade. Oh, yes. Right. The way that it can impact the social fabric of society and your own self and what it means to be a Muslim and everything else. That can be far, far more difficult. And the reality is that because of media and social media and the Internet and the general proliferation of Western secular liberal values and the way those things have been so deeply steeped into people's conscience as just the natural order of the world, right? Like, just simply relocating is not going to absolve us of having to actually confront those things. You're right. And it may make those things temporarily easier. It certainly does offer some important incentives, right, in terms of living in a place where the adhan still goes off and stuff. I mean, those aren't small things. I know to some people it's like, oh, that's so superficial. To me, I'm like, no, that means a lot to hear like the adhan at Fajr time and stuff. Like, subhanAllah, there's still sort of something there to that, right? But at the end of the day, like those societies are getting secularized at a very, very aggressive rate right now. And we're seeing scholars in those countries take positions that are essentially serving that project, right? We're that's, what I'm, see, that's what I'm saying. That even oh, in Muslim yeah. countries, if you have the view that you have right now with oh, the yeah. passion that you have right now, of course, you're, uh, I mean, we're considered extremists if we do. Oh, yeah, of course. Right? I and mean, we know I, what I happened know. to extremists in those countries. No, I, I don't know that I'd have the freedom to write the way that you I do in a Muslim-majority society. I mean, you're sort of opportunities and available avenues where you can actually express, depending on the society. We should. I mean, there yeah. are some Muslim countries that are um, more like positively disposed towards like Islam and Muslims and things like yeah. that. And so not all of them are the same, right? Of course they're not. Um, but but yeah, it's surprising it's a, that it would grow in, in, in a place where there's so many Muslims. That's oh, what yeah. we're trying to say. That's oh, yeah, why we're so course. surprised by it. Of course, yeah. right? And uh, what's, what's helped Muslim societies is that they've had these like historical and just entrenched sort of institutions and structures around just what was considered like normal or a given, right? These sort of musallamat, right? Just things that are just, people take them as the natural way of the world. And so for them to actually change is taking a little bit longer. And a lot of times people in the West will just like lament that. And they'll look at Muslim societies and they'll say, man, these guys are still, they still haven't recognized like our values, Right. They still haven't westernized sufficiently. There's still, and they'll usually start with the women's issues, right? Usually it'll be like, well, they're still yep. not, they're still not fully recognizing like women 
and they they don't like they don't have a society that accords like equitable rights to women and until like they've done that they can't be brought into sort of the modern world as we've defined it and we're sort of the gatekeepers of that right and so they're arbitrating between societies to say which one's better and which one's worse i mean that that's sort of a continuous thing yeah. but the reality is that slowly but surely Muslim societies are coming there, right? And some of them are coming there much faster and some of them are coming there a little slower. But that same critique, interestingly enough, will be made of not just Muslims, but other like immigrant sort of Christian groups and communities. Yeah. Right. So like when like, um, like Latino Christian groups sort of come as immigrants, right? They're very committed sort of to Christian ideals and values and stuff like that. And they just haven't gone through like, 50 years of secularization, right? Mm. And so when they look at like an Anglo-American church that, you know, is like nominally sort of committed to the Bible, right? And has all these sort of modernistic notions and is like an open and affirming church and all that, they'll be like, what the heck is that, right? <laughs> They're like, that's not even like a discussion for them or like Korean churches. So or has East that not happened yet with the, I don't know. It's I'm just, it's happening at a slower rate, right? Because they're just newer to this country, right? Mm. And because they're newer, like they're coming from places where this wasn't really a debate for them, right? Oh, you're saying it, so the globalization hasn't infiltrated Latin America. Like not even globalization. Talk about the religiosity of churches here. Yeah, it's, it's the happening everywhere. But the idea have. is that it's just happened those places less, and they are coming from places where sort of traditional religious ideas were more deeply rooted, yeah. and still hadn't like like the edifice of them had not like crumbled the same way that it has in the West. If you look at Europe, if you look at the West as a whole, right? You look at across Europe, and you look at the rates of atheism and unbelief. It's astronomical. It's astronomical, right? <laughs> I remember I was talking to a sheikh. In, in America, and this is Sheikh very strong on uh, eating non zabi hamid, right? He's very he's he's a big advocate of this idea that he's like pro non zabi. Yeah, yeah, he's we didn't very, get him on the podcast. Yeah, <laughs> he's very he believes like you know this kitabi country, all that type of stuff, whatever, right? But he was telling me he said you know when I travel to Europe, I eat zabi, you know. I mean, he's like there's just too many like there's too many atheists and non-believers in European society to feel confident about like my meat source, mm. right? And so he's like, you know, if, if I was invited to London or something like that, he's like, I would pursue the. That's actually a pretty interesting point, though. He said, but he said the dean hasn't sort of like the like in America, it hasn't sort of unraveled yet the same way mm. in American Canada, although it's really coming close to that. If you look, I mean, America, you know, a lot of Americans ha are like very now they're going very suspicious, and uh, I think a lot of Americans are not really like fully on board with the atheist project especially like the new atheist movement and all that a lot of people dislike them they've they've sort of made their own bed right yeah and i mean they're they're so like i mean you know talk about adab card right yeah. they're like the worst yeah they are the worst i mean they're intolerable yeah right just smug and just cheap cynicism all the time yep. No, I mean, it's just, that's, that's all they ever seem to do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're just constant insulting. I mean, they're just, I mean, you talk about jerks, right? That's like, that's like a program that has been pioneered and led by like the jerks of the world, right? <laughs> and so, and so a lot of Americans, even people who don't believe in like, even someone's atheist, they'll say like, yeah, but I'm not like those like yeah. new atheists or I'm not like with Dawkins or Sam Harris and those guys, right? And so what you're getting is just general sort of agnosticism. You're getting a lot of gen general yeah. agnosticism where it's like, look, I don't like, I, I don't really have a position, but I don't also, also don't have a religion, yeah. right? Like maybe there's a God, maybe there's not, right? But I'm just like not taking a stance. Yeah. And then sort of the religious like analog to that is that you're getting, um, 
you're getting a lot of people who are just like generic deists. Like, oh, I believe in a higher power. I believe in a God. I believe I should be a good, like, person, quote unquote, whatever that means. And that's sort of what religion means to them. But they don't believe in, like, religion as a formalized program for carrying out faith and belief and how what that belief is actually intended to mean and all of that right they're not they're not committing themselves to that and so if you you know rod Dreher wrote the benedict option he refers to that as therapeutic moralistic deism so tmd that's <laughs> that's kind of become his acronym that he always that he always uses to refer to that and it's it's always interesting to read him and like other sort of like Christian academics who come from like a very like confessional leaning because they actually talk about American society as post-Christian and they refer to themselves as living in a post-Christian West. Like today. Mm. Today. That's oh yeah. They, they don't, they say like, look, we're no longer living in a Christian society. Yes. Like the affectations of Christianity are still there. You'll still see skylines with like churches that are very visible and stuff like that. But what you're not going to see is like a vibrant practice of Christianity that's rooted in its actual beliefs and scripture and Jesus and all of that. And that's sort of gone by the wayside, right? Yeah. And so they, they, they see that. They see empty pews everywhere they yeah. go. They see traditional, like really heartland Christian institutions that have like basically given up, right? I mean, look, when, when I was growing up and this was, this was how society was, right? I remember in the nineties, like we had, uh, you know, for in elementary school, for instance, right? You had a Christmas play. Everyone pretty much, every school had a Christmas play. It wasn't even like a weird thing. And it was like a very like religious Christmas play, right? It wasn't just like, oh, Santa and a reindeer and things like that. It was like, whatever, right? That was like the play. It was, it was about like Jesus and stuff like that. And it's a public school, right? And you would do Christmas carols and like music class and things like that. And today, obviously, they wouldn't tolerate that. I remember even in high school, in high school, we studied the book of Exodus. And that was for English. You class. went to a public high school? Yeah, public high school. Oh, wow. Yeah. And they did the book of Exodus, and that was in English class. We oh. were all required to read it, and we were. That's again, the first, man. Yeah, I and that was, that. that was, that was right before 9 11, right? That was like the late 90s, right? I mean, I was in high school, and we were studying that and reading it. And look, I mean, even today now, I mean, even though people say, like, oh my God, that's like an open, like, evangelizing that we're uncomfortable with and stuff like that, you'll see, like, public schools today assign, like, the Ramayana. Right. So like the Dharmic stuff, which is sort of seen as being like very trendy and comfortable yeah, and yeah. like, you know, pe- people look at it as very enlightening and thoughtful. Yeah. And so there's less stigma around it. So they'll still feel like comfortable assigning it, even though that's like belief in scripture and theology and stuff like that. But they still, hmm. they still assign those types of books. But yeah, I mean, that was, that was common. And then if you look at like all of like all of the mainstream institutions that people put their children in and raise their children throughout, right? Libraries. They could go to a library and feel comfortable that they're going to get a book off the shelves that doesn't totally, like, insult and repudiate and disparage their belief. They can put their kids in, like, Boy Scouts and feel comfortable that the troop is going to, like, express, like, Christian belief and thought and all of that, right? Like, public institutions were comfortable for them to be a part of. Right. And we grew up and we had to be very careful because that's why Muslims, especially back then, there was this whole thing of we need parallel institutions. Right. That was the activity because we realized, hey, we need to have our own Boy Scouts. We need to have our own Muslim Taekwondo. We need Muslim this, Muslim that. The idea was we need to create an enclave for ourselves as a community so that we're not continuously under the aegis of Christian assumption. Right. Mm -hmm. Like we can't continue operating with like that. And so that's what we used to do. But now people look at that and they, they actually think that's a bad model because like, no, you want your kids to be like 
with like non-Muslims and you want them to be like part of secular society because then they'll know how to deal with it, right? Yeah. That's that's the that's the rationale and justification that's given to it. The other thing I think that people used to say is back then, well, if you met somebody who's irreligious, you'd be like, you, you'd almost identify with that irreligious person or secular person more than that Christian person because you're like, oh, that Christian person doesn't believe. Like, you felt that a Christian person was kind of opposing your view, yeah. so therefore the secularist is more appealing to you. But that, in, a, in essence, is kind of bite you in the rear. And I think, of in, course, in that yeah. way. no, and and that wasn't true back then. I mean, most people had like Christian friends, and generally yeah. speaking, there was greater overlap when it came to like morality and things like that. And so, I mean, it was like it was like the old sort of like canard of like the 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 dad. Who doesn't want his daughter to go out like dressed like inappropriately to school and is like policing her dress? Like, hey, you're not gonna wear that to school, right? That was like that was like a really like normal sort of like stereotype. Like the stereotypical good dad yeah. was doing those types of things and trying to take care of his family and making sure that they're doing good things and being good people and don't stay out too late, don't do this, don't you know, there there were all these things that were concerned for their well being and weren't seen as like oppressive or like, hey, you're like body shaming and like all of that type of stuff that people talk about today. That was like a normal part of the world, right? That was a normal part of the world. And it was a normal part of the world for us. And so it wasn't weird when Muslims did the same thing. We just did it in a different way, right? We had a different extent or a different way in which we did. And it's always strange to me because I think sometimes I'll look at the way that people sort of approach their vision of what they want the Muslim community to aspire towards. And even the way that they'll like, intersect between that and like fiqh and stuff like that and it's almost as if it's almost as if they desire a society that's like secular and atheistic right and so people talk about like hey is like is christmas haram well we just needed to become a little more secular right (laughs) once it gets rid of all religious meaning inshallah we'll be able to do it too Oh, right <laughs> that's that's kind of what muslims like hey is is it halloween haram well you know they'll do it with thanksgiving is thing well we you know it's it's sufficiently secular enough for us to feel comfortable with it and to me i'm always like wouldn't you rather live in a society where the sort of meaningful content of a holiday is surrounded around god and belief and scripture than one that's just like cheap materialism and commercialism like yeah it's like just just the worst impulses of capitalistic society on display every day wouldn't you like why do you why do you want this society to become i mean it's so ridiculous right i mean Mm. i would rather not practice it but have it actually function as something that's religious right? right like i want christians to actually believe in god and the bible because you can work with that yeah you can work with that but when people have just abandoned all of those convictions, all of that belief, and are just participating in life as consumers, and as consumers with shahawat that continuously need to be fulfilled, right? I mean, you talk about people forgetting themselves. Right? What nafs are they working towards? Right? This is like the, you know, this isn't, this isn't like, you know, people always talk about like, oh, it's like a person just like trying to fulfill themselves or embrace themselves. And it's like, well, which self? Mm. Because that's not an elevation of the human condition. It's deplorable. It's a mm. deprivation of the human condition. It's a total denigration of it, right? We don't see that as a positive development, right? We see the upliftment coming through doing things that are of benefit, yeah. right? 
فمن عمل فعليها فلنفسه right ومن عمل فلنفسه right a person who does good it's for their nafs right it's for themselves right and a person what they're t- supposed to try to do is condition and habituate themselves into suppressing the type of lowly and base desires that will emanate within the nafs yeah right وَمَا مَنْ خَافَ مَقَامَ نَفْسِهِ وَنَهَنْ نَفْسَ عَنِ الْهَوَى right right they're they're sort of like fearing that standing before their Lord وَنَهَنْ نَفْسْ عَنِ الْهَوَى and they are preventing their nafs from manifesting and carrying out those shahawat those base desires right those base desires that's why the Prophet ﷺ when he said حُفَّتِ الْجَنَّةِ بِالْمَكَارِهِ right yeah. that Jannah is surrounded by things that are like hated and difficult for people. Right? And the hellfire is surrounded by things that people are going to desire in that sort of lowly form. Yeah. And so when people talk about, well, they're just living for themselves, and they're just, no, they're living for their shahawat. Yeah. Right? Like that's actually what they're doing. Yeah. And it's a very sort of narrow concept of how they even look at themselves. Yeah, because you know, right? the concept of that, they, they try to use it as an excuse. Well, well, if Islam is already addressing the point that if that's in our nature, yeah. then why is it punishing us for punishing punishing us for that? Yeah. Well, that's a false understanding. Of Just course. because it's saying that that's what we're inclined to do, or we're going to come to the level of being inclined to that, it doesn't always mean that it's natural for you to do that. It means that if it becomes natural for you to do that, you realize you become lowly. Of course, right? Yeah, because that's the excuse that people, even Muslims, unfortunately, I mean. <laughs> Why is it that Allah is preventing us from something, but He's telling us in the text that's what we like, that's what we're inclined to. Yeah. But the inclination here is not looked upon as something that's your natural disposition. The inclination here is looked upon as, hey, if you get to this level, this is an element that can exist within you, but it's very lowly. Yeah, and, right? and, the, and the idea is that when a person continues to act in a lowly manner, yeah. in a way that departs from the command of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then they become like indistinguishable from animals. Kala'an'am. Yeah. Right? They're even worse. Right? Yeah. They're even worse than animals. Yeah. Right? Because animals will have some inhibition. Yeah. Right? <laughs> They'll have some limit, but human beings can be totally uninhibited. And yeah. that's what the modern world is embracing an uninhibited embrace of a person's shahawat. And being able to consecrate those through law and policy and have religious people look at themselves and say, you know what? We're going to affirm those things too and just privately. Right in our sort of churches, quote unquote, we'll try to hold on to the fact that we oppose every single thing that we're affirming here publicly. But again, like that's not that's not even realistic. I mean, yeah. number one, we we all sort of know that most of the time that sort of argument is just done to placate like religious people into like quieting down. Right. That's all it's trying to do. Right. Even like, hey, and that's why most people won't say like when even like on sort of like the homosexuality issue, most people won't. When I talk to like Muslims, a lot of them will say, look, I think people should be allowed to believe what they want to believe, right? And oh, we're not telling Muslims how, what they have to believe on this issue, right? I'll see this actually from Muslim civil rights organizations sometimes, where they'll say, we're not actually instructing the Muslim community on what position they should take. And that's always a red flag because it doesn't, they're not actually committed to what Islam has to say on it. Mm. What Islam has to say, right? Because we're not talking about something that has ikhtilaf, right? And that becomes really, that's, that's actually a really fraught part of the way that Muslims talk today. Is, you know, we, we have this whole narrative of what's conservative Islam and liberal Islam. Yeah. And what oftentimes is just ma'alum min ad-deen bid-darura, things that are known of the religion by necessity, 
are actually situated and positioned in the conservative Muslim camp, right? So now what it means to just be a Muslim, the definition of a Muslim, right? Suddenly becomes a conservative interpretation, Yeah. right? And that is really dangerous because when someone starts buying into, hey, we have liberal and conservative and things yeah. like that. No, we actually have a serious definition of Islam. We have a tradition that fully affirms that. We have aqidah, right? We have, we have halal and haram, like all these things exist yep. at an objective level. Yeah. Right? But, Which are okay. conditions so of you a, being As Muslim. you get into that, I, I really want to like huh. have you like dig in a little bit here. Yeah. You're talking about Islam. It's not what our Islam says. You're, you're referring to this what Islam says. Yeah. But then Islam, the way we're defining it is like, okay, it's Sunni Islam, right? And then you're opening up that can of worms of like, well, you know, Again, and then you, because from, from an outsider looking in, like you're pretty well read. You've got yeah. your convictions in, in red. But to you, but to a lay person, they were like, you know, well, these religious folks, they can't even agree on Sunni versus Shia. Now you got Qadianis or all this, you know, how do you, <laughs> like, how, how can you even communicate that to the masses that like this is Islam? Cause in reality, if I were to play devil's advocate, like, Mobin, what you're saying about it's, your Islam is Sunni Islam. It's not even inclusive of like, all the various sects that we know have been around, some going back almost 1,400 years. Well, the question is, am I discussing something that is like relevant to sectarian difference, right? Or are we talking like tafdil of Ali radiallahu anh or something like that? Like what's the relevant debate that's under discussion, right? Yeah. So if there is something that has lent itself to den- denominational disagreement, and I would say, okay, like maybe there's ikhtilafat, and maybe I am just asserting like, the Sunni position without like muta'a or something like that. And yeah, there's like some khilaf with the Shia and stuff like that yeah. or something along those lines, right? Um, but at its broadest sense, we do have a de- definition for what it means to be a Muslim. Now, yeah. some of the groups you mentioned, we wouldn't affirm them as Muslims, right? Yeah. Like we don't believe that the uh, Ahmadiyah and the Qadianis yeah. are Muslim, right? Yeah. Because they transgress upon Khatam and Nabuwa. They are yeah. Qadiani. Yeah. We make takfir of them, right? Yeah. I mean, there's no, there's, it's not like a controversial issue. It's, I mean, yeah. it's a controversial issue, certainly, right? But it, the notion of them like being non-Muslim is not a controversial yeah. issue because it's, Agreement, right? That's yeah. a consensus-based agreement. The conditions, yeah. There's yeah, conditions the, the con- for something the, for you to be Muslim. The condition that they have violated is so explicit yes. that there is no way to redeem them into the fold given that condition. Now, we have to be sensitive to the idea that, look, even Qadianis or Ahmadis, they're sort of like the Lohari branch and the other branch. And I don't know all of the details, right? Yeah. And some of them are just more like on the Mahdi front and some of them are whatever, right? Some of them are like fully affirming of like the Rusul or... Uh, Nabi status of like Mirza Ghulam Ahmad and all that type of stuff. But at the end of the day, like, like we shouldn't feel like scared to say like, look, like these people aren't Muslim, right? And we have a real definition of what Islam is. Yeah. And it's not, hey, I don't believe them to be Muslim given my Islam. No, what Islam says cannot be affirmed given what they're claiming, right? Not everyone that makes a claim to something should immediately be affirmed based on them merely making that claim. We wouldn't expect that in any other arena of life. Of course. No one would say that, regardless of what a person's position is, if they claim themselves to be a feminist, 
they're a feminist. Yeah. No one would say that irrespective of someone's like the leader of Hizb al-Tahrir and, he, or, <laughs> and then he comes out and he says, I am a secularist or something like that. People would be like, and he's still holding on to like the HT like playbook. No one would look at that and say like, yeah, that's like a genuine secularism, right? <laughs> at play. Like, no, of course not. People would say like, he's just like, it's like a joke in language. It's an empty term, right? Yeah, if we're gonna, it doesn't hold gonna, any meaning. Yeah, if we're gonna take this term and literally apply it to anybody that wants to lay claim to it, then it ceases to hold any meaning. Yeah, there's right. No to it, yeah. And so there is a reasonable approximation of what Islam means. There is a reasonable approximation of what it, with like again, like ikhtilaf on important issues and things like that. But again, there is enough agreement around things, right? So there may be disagreement on sort of like specifics within the prayer, but there's agreement on prayer being wajib. Of course. Right? And that they're five times a day. And, yeah. you know, again, there's agreement on a number of very important core issues on zakah, on fasting. The by the way, Ramadan. for the Hanafis, that's the, he said wajib. What he means by wajib is fard. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah. synonymous. it's synonymous. Don't worry. <laughs> it doesn't mean that it's wajib in the sense of wither. That's not what he means. <laughs> but anyway. <laughs> but I, yeah, I mean, there's, there's enough agreement on all these really important issues, right? And again, like with, with due sort of like respect to some of the ikhtilaf that we have on like tawassul and some of these like niche issues, there's agreement on like Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and tawheed and of course. the Prophet sallallahu And again, like there's, there's yeah. agreement on these issues with some like reasonable approximation that we can arrive at and say, this is what these things mean. Is universally understood, is universally agreed upon, basically. Of course, yeah. right? And, and even those things that aren't universally understood, there's like, there's a very defined spectrum. Yes. There's a defined spectrum where if someone were to like sit outside of that, right? We would say no, right? We'd say like, that's, that's, that goes beyond the pale. That's a position of kufr. Yeah. Right? And so that's that's important for us to care about jealously, right? We should jealously care about that. Yeah. Because if you look at if you look at our tradition, that's that's what so many scholars wrote tirelessly about. Tirelessly in defense of a discreet and real meaning of Islam. Yeah. And the integrity of the Quran and the Sunnah and the Prophet. ﷺ. That was that was what they devoted their lives to. Yeah. Right. If you look at like what I mean, people talk today about like all of these scholars and the scholarly tradition and just the difficulties that they had to deal with and even politically. Right. But if you look at a lot of them, they were like political consequences to the positions they took in defense of Islam. Right. So Imam Ahmad and Khalq al-Quran, Ibn Taymiyyah being imprisoned over like Wasatiyah and some of his yeah. Aqidah positions. The idea is that these people felt that like just passionate yeah, exactly. Right? And they were just that committed to upholding yeah. Quran and Sunnah, right? Yeah. Right? And th- that they were willing to pay the price and face the consequences. Of and the number of texts that were written in refutation of group X and Y, because the idea is that they understood that this is an important and powerful thing and it has so much value and meaning to it. We can't just allow it to be compromised yeah. by people who seek to compromise it or seek to misrepresent it or misappropriate it, right? We can't sit around and allow that to happen either. And so for us, we do have a real definition of Islam. And yeah, as there Muslims, has to be definition. And so whether it's like Qadianis or any other group, you know, I remember this was like, um, this was recently, like a couple of weeks back. Um, you know, there was a, uh, there was like a post and, uh, it was, um, by some sister who goes by like the moniker the Salafi feminist. I'm sure you guys are familiar with the feminist. <laughs> yeah, I've never heard of her. In my yeah, life. yeah, yeah. She had she'd written something and she had written something and she was critical of Amina Wadud. 
All right. Yeah. And so it got shared a lot and brother sent it to me and things like and she was critical and mashallah, like it was good because she took Amina Wadud to task over a statement that had been reported from Amina Wadud saying that, you know, sometimes you just have to say no to the Quran. That was the statement that wow. Amina Wadud had reportedly made. Again, assuming that the reporting was accurate and Amina Wadud did not like deny it. She kind of like doubled down a little bit when people started pressing her on it and stuff like that. So Allah knows best. Obviously saying no to the Quran and just rejecting verses. That's kufr. Yeah. That's kufr. But that camp is known for doing that. Of course. But the, the reason I bring this up is because when she did that, a lot of people were responding saying, well, you know, like, look, mashallah, like she's conservative or this is her Salafism <laughs> coming forward and things. And I was thinking like, there's no, con- that's not a conservative <laughs> take, right? That's not a Salafi position. Amina would do being Salafi? No, like what this, the Salafi feminist oh, sister okay. was saying, like what she's arguing against okay, right. is not a liberal Muslim position. Yeah. What she's arguing against is kufr. And what she's arguing for is Islam. Yeah. Right? Like that's what, what the relevant discussion was. Yes. And yet in so many people's minds, it was like, hey, we can't like let these like, oh, they're just conservative Muslims. We're just going to have to be able to live to disagree or agree to disagree and that type of thing. And I just thought like, that's crazy. That's crazy that you think being a conservative Muslim, that it's only conservative Muslims like affirm the entire book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Like that's, that's what I'm like, that's no, that's what Muslim means. Yeah. If you say no and reject, we're not talking about like ta'wil and things. I'm talking about reject a verse of the Quran. That's kufr. Yeah. There's no ikhtilaf on that. And mm. give I mean, Anbiya, give Anbiya bad names. Yeah. And it's crazy. I mean, like people, yeah, people, like for. people will traffic in these type of schisms. And that's why I'm, I'm very apprehensive to adopt like the title of like conservative Muslim. And I don't even like to use that term because if you think about it, what Muslims do is that there's this larger political narrative of like right and left, alt-right and progressive and all of that. Yeah. And what they do is they retrofit those things and apply them to the community. Yeah. Because those are the only terms that they're capable of sort of functioning with yeah. Right? And so they say, well, here's liberal Islam and conservative Islam. And they want to see a schism that actually develops and emerges and represents those two factions and all of that type of thing. Right? But there are a couple of problems with that. The first is what I've mentioned here is that what often gets assu- attributed to conservative Islam is just Islam, yeah. right? Like you hold Qadianis to or Ahmadis to be kafir. Well, that's conservative Islam. And it's like, no, that's not, that's just Islam, right? Khatam al Nubuwa. Khalas, man. That's not like, we're not, we're not, there's no, there's no debate on that, right? Yeah. So that's, that's one thing, right? But the, the other issue becomes, well, if we're actually committing ourselves to those labels, then as conservative, quote-unquote, Muslims, we're actually on the losing end of sort of the terminology game. Yeah. Because the cultural authority sits in liberal politics, not in conservative politics, right? People actually don't like conservative politics, right? It carries a lot of negative baggage with it today. Right. If someone says, I'm a political conservative, it carries all sorts of assumptions, right? Your disregard for the poor and weak Right? Your just willingness to submit to the impulses of the wealthy. You know, it, it carries all this baggage about what you think about guns, your hypocrisy, right? The conservatives are always seen as just being laden with hypocrisy, right? Religion and family values and all of that is just like empty rhetoric that these people use. And so it's like, if we're gonna, if we're gonna start using and employing and deploying that type of language, then we have to deal with all of those assumptions as well of bad faith upon us. And we don't agree with conservative politics. We agree with them on occasion, but most of that agreement is more incidental. 
right? Just yeah. like we agree with liberal politics on occasion, but that's incidental. Two people can have the same position and arrive on sort of the end position, but the reasoning and the justification of what got them there can be entirely different, can be a, a world apart, yeah. right? Two people can be making the exact same motions. One person's doing yoga, the other person's praying salah, right? It, to the, like, the otherwise sort of ignorant observer, these two people are doing identical activities. But to the person who knows, they recognize that there's a just a world of difference between person A and person B. Yep. That they're not alike in any way at all, outside of the fact that they just in sort of form or shape. But what sort of undergirds that, what informs that, what gives it meaning and life and all of that is totally different. Right. And so that's what happens politically as well, where it's like, okay, we may arrive at similar positions, but our rationale for doing so is very different. Mm. And so we shouldn't, I, I, I don't think we should commit ourselves to left, like left wing liberal politics. I don't think we should commit ourselves to conservative politics. And I think if you look historically, Muslim scholars were very tuned in to the power of terms and labels. Right. And that's why they were always sort of, they were always in the position of identifying groups and labels and what those terms what the implications were going to be and what they were going to carry and all of that right ahlus sunnah I mean ahlus sunnah you know a lot of like a lot of shia today will will like actually take offense with like oh they're not the sunnis we're the sunnis because they realize there's so much rhetorical weight and yes. a person referring to themselves as sunnis and being ahlus sunnah and everything that that term means and encapsulates insofar as a person loves and follows the Prophet ﷺ sunnah. Because the sunnah is understood. Yeah. And the implication is very clear. Whereas like the term Shia doesn't really carry like immediately positive implications. Right? In terms of etymology and meaning and all of that. Right? Tashayyu and all. I mean, you know, the min shi'atihi. Right? Like this isn't, it isn't a term that's like immediately like, it doesn't immediately render all sorts of positive results. Right? The mu'tazila right and mm-hmm. and these people have departed i mean they, they were very tuned into the idea that terms held meaning and the types of terms that they were going to apply were going to be terms that left them in a position of sort of intellectual authority immediately just even at that level and they were never going to commit themselves to terms that their um their opponents were applying to them Right, mm, like the idea that they're point, like an yeah. opponent. Opponent is calling me something. I don't need to just like, I don't just need to embrace that term simply because if someone's calling me like an alt bro. Well, we shouldn't just say, well, we're alt bro Muslim. Someone's calling me a conservative. Well, conserv- <laughs> no, like I reject the terms. I reject that terminology. So, so for example, like right, like back because yeah. the Qadianis will say, don't call us Qadianis, call us Ahmadiyya. Yeah, and we're like, no, Ahmed is the name of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. We're not going to honor you that way. We're calling Qadianis. Yeah. Um, but back in the day, did Mu'tazilites, for example, or Kharijites, what, what do they call themselves? Just Muslims or? Yeah, I mean, I don't, I doubt. Do they like, call themselves Ahlul Sunnah? Yeah, I, mean, I doubt that, like, <laughs> the Khawarij were walking around saying, like, we are. I'm a Khariji, <laughs> right? Like, of course not. Or, like, you know, I doubt people were sitting around saying, like, oh, oh yeah, like, I'm a Zindiq or a Fasiq or, right. like, no one was, like, self-identifying through that, like, framework or through those terms, yeah. right? And there was always tension and, you know, there was, there was always an ongoing sort of like place of debate, right? Where those things got fleshed out. And people had to work at it, right? The idea is that you had to engage people and present strong, intelligent, worthwhile critiques that could then 
make your claim valid, right? And that's the point, is that if we're going to proceed in being conscientious about the terms of our discussion and terms that we want to apply to other people, well, those terms have to be substantiated. Anybody can create like a term that's just like insulting towards another group, right? Yeah. <laughs> like we can just say, oh, those people are really this. Yeah. But that doesn't accomplish anything if it's just intended to insult. But if it's actually backed by a really strong like reasoning and logic and a person's actually put the effort into actually explaining themselves and saying, hey, like here's here's what's like gone into like why this terminology has meaning and things like that, then you have a starting point to actually engage in some sort of debate with people with, right? But that that again, even doing that presumes that people care enough to do that, right? Like that, like your Qadiani Ahmed, the example is a good example because that presumes that Muslims care enough and are zealous or just, they're just protective enough of their own faith that they, number one, they, they are recognizing that the potential or possible threat posed by an ascending sort of politically active Qadiani community poses to the Muslim community in trying to advance their notion of them being as Muslim as anyone else. Right. Number one, that a person recognizes that and sees that as as a real issue, and perhaps people disagree on that. But I think I think there's something to be said for that. And then if they are, if they do sort of witness that and see that, well, then they're committed to actually engaging in a process of trying to staying that off and trying to make sure that that doesn't occur. And if people actually feel strongly about that, then that's what they're going to engage in, and that's what they're going to do. They're going to educate the community that may not know. Hey, why why do we like regard these people? Why did all these scholars hold them to be kafir? Like, why has why has the ummah agreed on this? What why does Islam say that? Like, if a scholar is able to come and and actually like commit themselves to that, then they can help. Again, if they felt that this was that important, that's what they would do. That's what they would do. That would be the natural outcome of that. But it requires first a person seeing the issue as what it is, and then secondly, a person actually feeling as though they can they can contribute towards counteracting it so right you know I, that's that's just so, so like 45 minutes ago sim gave me the cue to like wrap it up yeah <laughs> and i thought about my friend abraham yeah. our buddy down in new orleans yeah and cause he tweeted this week saying something like whenever mahin says time to wrap up i get sad <laughs> so i ignored sim yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know and he's like, that you was for you ibrahim that huh? was for you ibrahim yeah he's like you have coffee too bro you don't you don't like <laughs> yeah. you know, and is going on. First of all, Sheikh Amr, you're not off the hook yet. About, you got to oh, yeah, answer yeah. that question about. Yeah, of course. Like so happily, yes. Yeah. Okay, so it's re- actually very, very. Simple. Review that question again, and so the question is the question is. You know, I think before before we I think wrap up, we should say, I know for a majority of the time it seemed like one big rant that this podcast yeah. was, yeah. and <laughs> the reason for that is is to challenge ideas that are very prominent and have become mainstream and how we as believers give you options on how to challenge these beliefs when you're faced with them, when you're faced with these ideas. And it just happens to be that there's so many things to talk about. We want to challenge them from the roots. So it may have seemed like one big rant, but don't think about it that way. Think about it as we're giving you tools to add your toolkit on how to talk about things in Islam so you don't feel uh, like we don't have an answer. We always have an answer as believers. We're, you know, to, we have the Quran, we have the Sunnah. We always have the answers based off the principles of the Quran and Sunnah. So let's wrap it up with something as far as love for Rasulullah is, because that's a good way to I think that we can good thing. And I would love to hear uh, you know our respected guest 
um, Mubin's uh, uh, ideas on this too, because I'm not going to be the only one talking on this. Okay. So let's wrap it up with on a, on a light note, a beautiful note, a, a, a note of how much we're supposed to love Rasulullah First and foremost, we want to think that the question is, if Rasulullah pre preached modesty and humility, and now the statement is, from a hadith of Rasulullah is that no one is a true believer until I am more, and he's talking in first person, Rasulullah says, I'm saying, I am more beloved to him, or the, the Muslims themselves, more beloved than their mother, their father, and all people, including your children, including everybody. How is that a modest statement coming from a modest person who's preaching humility, right? Well, the question is, number one, we have to think about uh, how we think about modesty and humility, what that means. That's one thing. But historically, Rasulullah before the age of 40, before he got prophethood, he never told people, you have to love me, you have to love me, you have to love me. He never said that. And the example that I always give, especially to little kids, is very, very and it, it works for elders too, is when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala told the angels to bow down to Adam alayhi salam, were the angels committing shirk? No, they weren't committing shirk. Right? They were following the orders of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So if they bowed down to Adam, they're worshipping Allah. In a similar way, Allah tells us to bow down in the direction of the Kaaba. We're not worshipping the Kaaba. No Muslim believes that. We're praying in that direction because it's a command from Allah. So every time we bow in that direction, we're worshipping Allah. Right? So now, what does it have to do with love of Muhammad sallallahu Well, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the Quran tells us first and foremost about Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and his speech and when he speaks. When in Surah Al-Najm, when he says, When Muhammad speaks, especially in matters of deen, he's not speaking from his whims and his desires, rather it's revelation revealed. So hadith is a type of revelation, it's a type of wahi. It's just not the type of wahi that we read in our prayer, right? The Quran is known as, in, in Arabic terminology, wahi matlu, meaning tilawa. You read it and you get ajr for reciting it, right? The hadith are actions of Rasulullah Commandments that were given by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, but he puts it in, in, if you want to say layman terms, or in terms for us to understand, to differentiate his speech and Allah's speech, right? So when he says to love me, he's not saying love me out of his own whims and desires. It's an act of worship that Allah commanded him to say to the people. So the more you love Allah subhanahu the more you love Rasulullah the more you love Allah. And how it works is we all know the verse, everyone says it almost in every khutbah, when Allah says, in kuntum tuhibbun allaha fattabi'uni. If you love Allah, then follow what follow me. But it doesn't just mean follow me in my actions. Follow everything I say. Follow everything I do because it's commandment from Allah. So if you love Allah, then love me. And everyone loves Allah, obviously. So Allah is first in line, second in line is Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, and then mother, father, and all that good stuff, right? We know that. So loving Rasulullah, the act is worshipping Allah. In a similar way, the angels were told to bow to Adam Salam to worship Allah. So the more you love Rasulullah, the more you're worshipping Allah. It's a beautiful combination because Allah gave us a human being to love. Right? It's a lot easier to love a human being. What if Allah told us you know, the, the refutation in the Qur'an of the Mushrikeen al-Makkah is saying that if Allah wanted to send a messenger, He'd send the angels, right? But Allah t- answers, because He created us, He knows how we think, that if Allah sent an angel as a messenger, what would the what would the people say? Oh, He's an angel, we can't do what He does. It's impossible. 
So Allah actually gave us a favor by giving us a human being out of his mercy, subhanahu wa ta'ala, and then told us to love that being and gave him traits that it's impossible not to love this person. His enemies loved him, but they didn't want to admit it because of their arrogance. And there's this, once you have that understanding, then we see that metaphysics that Mubin was talking about is there's something that occurs that's unexplainable and this is what people can't understand about our belief that one that occurs that you love Rasulullah because Allah says so there's something that occurs that you love this person so much that when you read the seerah you love him more than anybody else but you can't explain that to anybody else right and now we're not asking people to have a leap of faith we're not saying oh just just trust me, become Muslim, and then it's all going to be easy. No, we have to be convinced of it first, right? And that's a whole different discussion. But that's generally how we, we answer that question. Uh, and Mubin, if you want to chime in too, I'm pretty sure I missed out on a lot too. No, but, no, it's that you know, but, um, you know, because your depth is very much appreciated. No, no, I don't, I don't have much depth, but no, <laughs> no, it's, it's quite, it's quite important, you know, subhanAllah, you just think about just the emphasis that, um, sort of the maqam of the Prophet Sallallahu and our deen. And the way that a person is supposed to follow him, revere him, adore him in his life, in his path, and the things that he did, it's substantial, right? And it requires a lot of us, but it's it's where we find ultimate fulfillment yeah. as Muslims, right? It's through the worship of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the obedience and following of the Prophet ﷺ that occurs. And that's why you have a lot of a hadith that talks about sort of halawat al-iman, right? Sort of the sweetness of faith or the thaqata'am al-iman. That the, you know, that they'll taste sort of that, that, the flavor, that, the, yes. the actual, the actual flavors of faith that a person will be able to like actually absorb all of that, right? And, um, you know, scholars in the past, they used to talk about sort of a person's hal, right? How, how's a person's sort of state and their condition relative to their standing in front of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and their own sort of iman? Right, and there was always a recognition that there was a sort of correlation between a person's activity in sort of adhkar and ibadah and all of those things being sort of in place, and a person's sort of undying and sort of abiding love and commitment for Allah Subhanahu wa Taala and the Prophet Sallallahu That just that was able to overcome a lot. And I think, I think interestingly, I think one of the mistakes sometimes we make. I think all of us are guilty of at times, is when we see all of sort of the contemporary issues, we feel that the sort of exclusive sort of response that we need to have to these issues is an intellectual one. Or just an academic answer. Yeah. And, yeah. So, and so the idea is that what we've done is we've reduced people to their minds. But we believe that people are body, mind, and soul. That people have a soul and people have a spirit. And there are natural things. I mean, there are plenty of Muslims that... I'm sure many of you know, and I know, and others know, that simply through ongoing practice and, you know, just doing the things that they're supposed to do, right? Siyam and Qiyam and, you know, giving in Sadaqah, and just doing those things has helped inoculate them from any number of liberal trends without being conversant in the relevant refutations mm. or the discourse or whatever, right? Very awesome they're just, point. Yes, sir. They're just naturally disposed towards that, given the fact that they've rooted themselves in something quite firm, Right? That it's, it's a very firm commitment that they've made. And that's, that's what sort of brings a person stability. And, uh, those, that's why we sort of have to do things in concert, right? That the person can't simply be sort of engaged solely in sort of the academic realm, but a person has to have a very, very strong spiritual commitment to who they are and what they do. And that's, you know, subhanAllah, I think about this a lot today. And I think about when I was growing up and, uh, 
you know, sort of in the 90s, we used to attend ISNA, right? And other Muslim conferences too. And the you could not attend a conference without feeling sort of just the spiritual aura in the air, right? People would, you know, be dressed in sort of like thobes or whatever. And, and there, was, there was all of that, right? But it was more than that. It was more than yeah. that. I mean, there, there was, it was the way that people talk. It was the salah, right? The jama'ah, when it would take place. Everyone went, I mean, the idea Behind that you Muhammad were Behind Muhammad Jibreel. Yeah. I mean, subhanAllah, <laughs> everyone would go to the jama'ah for yeah. prayer, you know? And, you know, the, the, the scholars that were speaking would be sort of at the front, you know, you'd see like Jamal Badawi, and we'd see these people, and they they were the they were our leaders, but they were also sort of out front. You know, Sheikh Abdullah Idris Ali and Muhammad Nur Abdullah and all these people, and Mashallah, it was it was just the example that was being set. That first and foremost, this is our community, and the type of program that was being asserted was a reflection of that. So you'd have, you know, sessions on just Sahaba and Sira and all of that, because there was an idea that we're inculcating sort of a spiritual. And religiously committed culture, like that's what we're developing here. Yeah. And we're trying to do that for a handful of days to see what type of impact that that can have on a person. Okay. Right. And it was very powerful. I still, subhanAllah, I still remember when it's, I remember going downstairs to the hotel. It was like, it was the Hilton staying in and, uh, and, uh, there was Fajr. It was yeah. Jamaa for Fajr, right? And, uh, yeah, just one thobe went down and I'd gotten there early and I still remember like, almost like every speaker from that conference was just there. Yeah. Like already there. And they were just sitting there reading Quran. And they were praying Salah. And they were just there. And I knew like a lot of the brothers from like the Adam Center that I grew up, they helped pioneer the Islamic Society of North America. Yeah. And I used to see them. So, you know, uh, Dr. Jamal uh, Barzinji, Allah yarhamu, he'd just be sitting there and, you know, Ahmed Tatunji, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala preserve him. Just these people, they'd just be sitting there and just, you know, yeah. reading Quran and, waiting for salah. Yeah. And it was just a given that whatever other work was being done was an extension of this. Yes. This was our center. Very important point. Right? This was our center and all of the other stuff, whether whatever programming, whatever we're doing, whatever civic activism, whatever whatever else we need to do, not only like coincides with that, but actually emerges from that. Yeah. Right, like that's where it gains. Like this is our principle. It doesn't need to be legitimized. It legitimate on its, it's legitimated on its own terms. Mm. And so, when a person is in that immersed in that type of environment, it it produces something that's quite a bit different, right? Yeah. And that's I think that contributed in large part to an era of a lot of Muslims who, when they were in college, and they were at an age where they were thinking to themselves, and many students in college do this, because in college it's the first time in a person's life where they are ever looked at as being like responsible in any capacity, right? Pre-college, most people don't even do like their laundry and stuff, right? They're just playing video games or whatever. Some people in college do that all the time too, but the idea is that they're, this is the first time they're seen as being responsible. And so in that, in that sort of like time frame, a lot of people would think to themselves, you know, there's more to life than just getting a job and a career and making money. And so when people sort of came to that realization, a not sort of trivial number of Muslims would say, you know what, like, it's through deen that I'm going to find that higher meaning. And a lot of people in sort of MSAs really like became and like flourished as Muslims, right? And MSAs were a big reflection of that. And, you know, they, they... they used to do, you know, fastathons and, you know, they, all those types of things. There, there was that culture, of, you know, Fajr phone call trees, right? We used to do that. <laughs> I'm going to say that was, that wasn't an uncommon thing. Hey, we want to call it just so people don't sleep through. Yeah. 
because it was like, look, we're we're brothers of one another and we help support one another and this is what sort of Islam amounts to, right? Yeah, on that note, you remember you remember, you know Ali Salah? Yeah. Ali, Ali Salah, yeah, the one in like no, he's an Indonesian now. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so Ali Salah and I used to be on this Tahajid club back in like 2004. Mashallah. What club weren't you in? Is what I want. Like, <laughs> this guy would call me at like 2 a.m. Mashallah. Hey, we had this like circle, and I had to, I had to call somebody. <laughs> right. Oh, no, Mashallah, man, and that was That's that impressive, was actually wow. that was a wonderful world, right? And uh, you know, generally speaking, today it's tough because when a college student is going through that same thing. What they look for, like that higher purpose or fulfillment in, is becoming like a justice advocate, yeah. right? That's where a person sees a higher purpose. But those things are temporary. I mean, your sort of passion about things in like your mid twenties, when you're like in your mid thirties and forties, and you have a kid, I mean, you're not gonna like, yep. you're not gonna be like, yeah, in the White House lawn, check like out the former hippies. Yeah, you're, yeah. I mean, yep. you're Case gonna, point. you're just gonna be going to work and living life. And the idea is that Muslims who went through that, when they started hitting those ages, they still had the dean there. Yeah. Right. So like the Salah was still there, like a lot of all those things were still there because they they established a strong framework in their sort of formative years. And, um, you know, if if people want to sort of embrace that and take seriously like this, like Hubba Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, right, and really get that it comes through like Amal and there's no shortcutting it. Yeah, there's no shortcutting it. Right. And that's a tough proposition for people because people are so accustomed to shortcutting things. Yeah. They're accustomed to quick fixes. They're accustomed to talking about problems on the outside and they're not accustomed to dealing with their own spiritual shortcomings. You know, people, and it's weird. I mean, there will be people who are like hardcore, like social, like media activists or Muslim leaders or whatever the term that's in vogue is in today. But sort of the amal is not there. The amal is not there. And when the amal, when the practice isn't there, a person's vulnerable. They're vulnerable to anything that can come their way. Right? So a person has to have resiliency. They have to have fortitude. And that comes through like sujood, right? <laughs> um, you know, that, that was, that was the discussion, right? I mean, that was always, I still remember, I still remember that, uh, I still remember Dr. Jackson. Um, you know, he was talking, I think it was at a conference, something like that back in the day. And, um. You mean he, Dr. Sherman Jackson? Yeah, Dr. Yeah. Sherman Jackson, yeah. Dr. Sherman Jackson, he was talking at a conference and he said, you know, he said, he said, we have an issue when we think every single problem in the world can be solved through this. Mm. And he just like pointed to his head, right? Like mm. that we can just think our way through every issue. And we're not willing to do the work that is, I mean, and you think about it, like praying a couple of extra rakahs before you go to sleep, it's like five minutes. I mean, five minutes, right? Yeah. For me, and it's think, true. And think about, and think about, and just think about. I like short surahs. <laughs> even with short, just yeah. think about how rarely it gets done, you yeah. know? And that's like, again, it just talks to like, you know, I think about this with our parents' generation. Like, how come our parents' generation, they were, they came here for money a lot, right? Like, what held up? And, you know, I know not everybody, certainly this is like a generalization, but a lot of our parents' generation were taught from a young age and had instilled in them this idea that like, like when, what religion required was like this. Hmm. And when they adopted that, they did it. So they would do fard and sunnah 
and witter hmm. and nothing and ideas. Look, I'm religious now. I realize what religion requires yeah. for me to be strong in this. I'm not just going to be on the bare minimum. I realize that this is kind of what it takes for me to hold over against all of the social pressure that I'm going to have to deal with. And those are people that did not do any additional study. These weren't fuqaha or anything. They were just people who, you know, I have to read the Quran. You know, I have to do tasbih, right? Yeah. Like the idea of tasbih. You know, sure, there was like, there was like this whole controversy or like masbah and stuff. Yeah. But the whole idea that you just had a generation of like uncles and aunties that just after Salah we're doing tasbih. You know? Like that's crazy today. Yeah. That's crazy today. Cause how many messages do you go to where it's like the salam ends and it's like announcements? Yeah. Or people are on their phones. Yeah. During and the khutbah and after the khutbah. Yeah, I mean, oh, I yeah. Think we, we always hate about the uncle generation, but at the yeah. same time, they're the ones they held it down with the masjid, right? They held and it then, down. Like, it's, and, you, and, you, and we were like, oh, they don't know. Like, I, like it's my, my father-in-law, right? I don't think he knows that much about the deen. <laughs> but he's like <laughs> yeah. hitting up five prayers at the masjid every day, yeah. hitting 10, like, itikaf, hit 10 nights every Ramadan, right? Yeah. You know what I mean? So it's like, and I, I told my wife, like, he's probably like a wali, you know what I mean? In that <laughs> sense. Okay. Yeah, really possible. You know? It's quite possible. But at the same right? time, I'm like, you, but I know that because he'll ask me questions or I'll say something like, yeah, fiki wise, we shouldn't do this. He's like, okay, you know, because, but like, for, as far as like pure ibadat goes, like, just like discipline. Yeah. Dude's on it. Yeah, of course. Yeah. No, course. I mean, it was like. That's the previous generation, man. Yeah. I mean, I remember when I was like, when I was like in college and like, you know, I started practicing and like, even like my, um, you know, like my family, my grand, they'd be like, oh, you're not going to pray like sunnah? <laughs> yep, like, what I is know. that? Like, yep. you're, like, you're not going to pray like sunnah? Like, I remember you're I supposed w- to be like, I thought you were like a the dini guy. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. this is, it was weird. And I was like, oh my God. Like, they put you in check. I, I, yeah, I, 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 like, I stopped praying with her because I was like, that. it's, I don't yeah. want to make it a bidda. Yeah. That's what Hadafis do. Yeah. In my hardcore Salafi days, I was like, yeah, I don't always pray. I don't pray with her because, you know, these, the Ahnaf made it like wajib and they're upon bidda. <laughs> but here, your input is always amazing. You know, Mabina. So, like, I think that's that's your takeaway. I was going to ask you, like, what's your take? Because people are going to listen to this two plus hour podcast. Yeah. And they're going to be, like, super motivated. Like, man, this dude knows about feminism. <laughs> he knows about, like, all these ideologies. And he yeah. broke it down on trans and all this stuff. Although we really didn't get into those topics, like you know, in a lot of there's a lot of detail. You know inshallah, what I mean? inshallah, I have a more I'm detail. Good. My parking is good till midnight. No, 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 no. no. I don't want to. I don't want to stay around because there's a lot I can discuss on. Inshallah, I actually have a detailed paper that's coming out on okay. transgender. Yeah, tell us about the paper before we conclude. Inshallah. Yeah. So the idea is where can it be found? So, and all yeah, that yeah. Kind of so stuff. the first part of this I wrote on Muslim matters. It was called "The Male Is Not Like the Female," right? Sort of drawing from that, and it was on. This Which means that, uh, yeah, the man, man is like the woman, yes. Yeah, and so the, the entire paper was focused on the question of tahannuth, or, um, like this idea of like, uh, a male who's like feminine, like a feminine male, right? Or he has feminine sort of like behavioral yeah. characteristics and traits, and sort of what does that mean? And the reason I wanted to get ahead of that was that I was concerned that if I didn't, at some point people were gonna say, well, Islam's always recognized transgenderism. Yeah. And we have a storied tradition of transgenderism, and here's where it is. And, you know, to the otherwise unassuming Muslim, they'd say, oh, wow, like we were ahead of transgenderism before the left was and all that type of stuff, right? Yeah. And so the idea was, number one, the, to me, the far more important part is establish what Islam actually says on the issue. Yes. And so that paper is there, and that was sort of part one, right? And the focus was really, let's like examine the relevant fiqh of this issue, and let's actually express or delineate 
what the fuqaha and the sharia has to say on this issue of tahannut and tarajjul, right? Sort of mannish women and then like effeminate men, right? Sort of those two categories and what they mean. And so that paper's been up for some time and that was on Muslim Matters. The second part of it is now entering into conversation on transgenderism as a modern reality and then ideas around gender fluidity and gender just being a social construct and all of that and talking about all the different issues that that brings to bear for us and like how we can potentially address them while like you know what what type of responses can we do and possible critiques and all of that and so inshallah that's the part two it's quite a bit lengthier than part one because there is there's a lot to be addressed inshallah in the next couple of months hopefully it'll come out Allah knows where I'm sure. All right, we have a lot of cop cars out there waiting for you. Moving. <laughs> yeah. It's like the, the leftist this, police center yeah. Our army. But like, so just to wrap it up, the advice you're given is basically like, let's focus on Ibadah. Let's get back to some basics. Huh? Um, and if people, I assume, feel like they are in tune with their dean enough where they want to like, you know, become more proficient in some of these fields, they can. I, I would assume they could just reach out to you directly. They if can. They, wanna, like, they can. I mean, look, look, all of this to me, all of this discursive is just getting people to a point where they can open up the Quran and not have nagging concerns over what they're about to read. Yeah. Right. If you think about, if you think about the history of just like Islam itself, right? If you look at sort of like Kalam as a project, for instance, and you know, there's like debate that inspired and all of that. But the idea of Kalam was just to get people into the point where they can confidently understand yeah. God and the rationale for God, it was not to embrace, like the idea was Kalam just, it's a starting point. Yeah, It's a starting point. But what that does is it overcomes and resolves a variety of really serious doubts that otherwise stand as obstacles to people being able to read the Quran and Sunnah yeah. and embrace it and understand it. Right? right? Whatever one thinks of Kalam, right? And Ibn Taymiyyah and all of these people were just trying to get people to get past those doubts because the idea is when those doubts linger, a person actually can't do the things that I'm talking about because they just, they, it's very too difficult. Too much holding them back. Yeah. There's too much. I mean, it's very difficult for a person who has all, has just, just absorbed all of these criticisms of Islam. And then they open up the Quran and they're going to read verses about Qawama. Right, and they're gonna read verses about cutting off the hands, right? And they're gonna read verses about Hud al Ain, and they're just gonna read all of these verses are going to come up in front of them. They're gonna read verses talking about men and women. They're gonna read verses about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala using the Dhamir Huwa, yeah. right? Right? And they're gonna read all of these things and there's gonna be like these li- why is this? Why is that like it's just there's too much baggage. Yeah. They're going to read the Sunnah and they're going to come. If a person just does Riyadh al-Salihin, Riyadh al-Salihin was like the playbook yeah. for like the Ami, right? For the average Muslim, it was like read Riyadh al-Salihin. And Riyadh al-Salihin presents a lot of challenges today, right? <laughs> Even the Arba'in, the Arba'in very early on. You have the hadith of, um, you know, Umirtu wa nuqatil nas right? Uh-oh. You sort of have that hadith. It's very early yes. in the Arba'in. It's one of the first hadith in the Arba'in. Yep. And the hadith of Bid'ah and all of these types of things. And so the idea is when a person's just like encumbered with all of that, it becomes an obstacle for them to be able to interact with our like seminal sources of Islam. Yeah. The Quran and even the basic books of Sunnah. And so that's all we're trying to do here. Okay. And if people Beautiful. are able to get into the regular practice of Amal, inshallah, that's, that's where they should focus. Definitely. Um, cool. And Allah knows best. Allah well, knows best. We, we were, it wasn't even a finalized thing we were going to have you on today. I think yeah. we were going to meet, meet up and get food, but, yeah, yeah. and you were like trying to play it off. And I was like, Mubin, what's your specialty? 
No, oh, I, I don't know. Like you're just the dude. You're you work in no, IT. If he's in town. I mean, I yeah, know. Yeah, no, we we have to do a regular season. I remember when we talked to him. It's not man. Me and Sim sat with him. I just talked to him for like five ten minutes. I was like, I another time I was like, dude, yeah, next man. time we can see this guy, he's on the podcast with us, bro. Yeah. Oh, for, oh, I think oh, I'll we eat that shawarma in. I was busy with that tahini sauce and that garlic. You know, we has a lot on his mind. And next time, inshallah, we he'll have a lot more to say. No, no. <laughs> all right, all right. Jazakallah Khairul Beef for coming through, man, and uh, look forward to you know hearing more from you uh, on the podcast. Um, for our listeners out there, if you have any questions or comments, you can email us at themadmamluks at gmail dot com. You can also follow us on Facebook. Give us a like. We're stagnant on likes, folks. Forty two thousand likes ain't enough. Ramp it up. <laughs> uh, follow us on Twitter. Follow us on Instagram. Um, and then you can donate to us at the www.themadmamluks dot com. Uh, appreciate everybody who's been donating. See that coming through. Much love and support. This helps us keep doing what we're doing, putting out a weekly show. And I think we were just some blog in London just ranked that ranked us number one Muslim podcast. Yeah, yeah. you know what up, yeah. Bahath? 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 Yeah. I don't know who you are. I don't know if you maybe they have like two readers, but well, we got mad love for you, man. We got mad love yeah, for you. Man, don't and make sure if, if any Mad Men Books fans uh, go and click like on their page, B A H A T H. Yeah, right, Bahath. For sure. For Check sure. them out. Absolutely. So uh, for our special guest, Mubin Vaid, and my co-hosts, Sheikh Amr Saeed and Sim, this is Mahin signing off for the Mad Mamluks. Assalamu alaikum.